still remembers Pampiro Furpo? Who booked the screw job in Montreal? Who has a good friend named Weasel Dooley? Everyone knows it's corny. Who managed Bobby Eaton and Condry? Who managed Stan Lane and Dr. Tom? Who's sick and tired of Kenny Olivier? Everyone knows it's corny. Who took a shoot, fought off of the scaffolding? Who bled a gusher in a white suit? Who said Ronnie Garvin went up like the challenger? Everyone knows it's corny. It's Jim Cornette's drive through He'll answer questions from you And he won the pony too Thank you, fuck you, bye 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 Hello again, friends And you are our friends And welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's drive through Right here on another beautiful spring day In some parts of the country It's about to pour here but it's nice in Louisville, Kentucky, and of course, that is the residence, the home, the home area where the residence is, I guess I should say, the spring residence of the Cornette family. I've lost this completely, but let's go to the star of the show. I'm your host, the great Brian West. Here is Mr. Jim Cornette. So we got to move out as soon as summer starts? Is that what you're saying? Well, they used to do that with DiBiase in the WWF. They would say, now making his summer residence in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Well, I don't care whose anus he was making his summer residence in. I'm staying here all year round. This is the headquarters. This is the home base. This is the command central. For the Cornet Empire, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Every four years, it's 366, I'll have you know. And that's where I'm that's going right. to stay regardless. Of, are you trying to force me off my land? Are you, are you trying to be like one of those Western villains and force me off my land? I'll have you know this land has been in my family. Cornet's Mountain has been in my family since before the Depression. No carpet bagger from up north is going to... As a matter of fact, the fine fence-building fellas are right in the back right now working on the southeast and southwest quadrants so that I've got a barrier up against any type of invaders or carpet baggers such as you people coming in from, the, from Yankee land trying to run me off my land. I don't know what triggered this rant about the Yankees and us northerners, but... Well, you, you're trying to you're trying to run me out of here. Spring residence, summer. You, you you were all over the page. Didn't know whether to wind your ass or scratch your watch on the intro. And it, it you, Brian Last, have not been getting enough sleep. We'll talk about that later on in the program, I'm sure. But you sound tired, peaking, feeling puny, even. You need to get the energy level up. This is your program, Jim Cornette's drive through. Your your show, <laughs> I get. You know you're not represented in the title. They couldn't figure out a way to stick Desi Arnaz into the title of of the the prospective Lucy show until finally they came up with I Love Lucy and and he was in there nominally. But you're not even. I'm okay with it's that. It's not even like 
I host Jim Cornette's drive through Now, let me stay in the background. Let you get all the credit and uh, some would say blame. Yeah. All the blowback. Well, where are we blowing from here? There's a lot of things going on in the world. Uh, we're going to talk about some of those, but you barely, how's this for a, tra- a segue, if you will, you barely made it through the weekend up there in the wilds of New Jersey where you live. I thought it was, it was uh, the, the wilderness down here in Kentucky. You had an issue. We had an issue. The <laughs> best pizza place stopped delivering all weekend. So I was kind of screwed. You, you didn't pick up. You barely made it through the weekend. I got the what bear. you're talking about. There's a bear. What, I mean, what do you want me to say? There's a big, big bear, apparently a mama bear from what the other neighbors are reporting. <laughs> and apparently there's a bunch of cubs who we have not had the pleasure of meeting yet. Oh, there's cut. Well, then you got a bigger problem, a bigger bear problem than I thought you did. You called me or tied Actually, I called you, but you told me that you had a bear wandering around on your property in broad daylight. You were looking at it on your various security camera footage that you got at Pablo Escobar's yard sale. You got the cameras and, and sound wired on the whole property. And and you have a full-grown adult bear meandering around your your grounds there, but they get mean if they've got cubs. Because then they're they're being protective. If you walk out there at the wrong time of the day, well, you're fucking you what you need to do, you got and and at least you've got four kids. So you got plenty of backup. Um uh, send right. a kid out in the driveway before you walk out there every time just to make sure. And if some big dark brown mass comes and makes away with the child, you'll know not to go out for a while. Now, I've developed a strategy. I kind of feel a little more comfortable now than I did a couple of days ago when the bear had just been here for a couple visits within a few hours. <laughs> I feel a lot more comfortable. I came up with a strategy, so I feel good now. What is your, what now you were taking a shovel to the bees. What are you going to take to a live full grown adult mama bear, a fucking bazooka? Of course, this problem isn't exclusive to me. It turns out it's something a lot of people here in the woods deal with. These bears. (laughs) They're in the woods. So I Googled the bears and my area here. You Google? Wait a minute. Is that legal in New Jersey? I mean, I know it's legal down south, especially in Mississippi. Only during Googling season is it illegal in New Jersey. But I went to see, and the first thing that popped up, the the first thing that popped up, I'm so happy the bear wasn't here at that moment. The first thing I see... Is a picture of a tree with four bears in it. And I'm like, oh my God, they're in the fucking trees. How am I going to fucking defend myself? They're in the trees. They're on the ground. They're everywhere. (laughs) They're in the tree. So I'm starting to, I find a website that has like things to do, things not to do. (laughs) Don't go outside would be number one. It said if you happen to encounter a bear, because I'm not going to be held captive in my house by a bear. (laughs) Don't make eye contact. Because they'll see that as a challenge. And also, they don't like loud noises. So now, here, I'll show you. Every time I go smoke a joint outside, I bring the thunder tube. No no wonder you're seeing bears. I bring the thunder tube. So as soon as I open... The thunder tube. Let's say I'm going to go outside. As soon as I open the door and go outside, the first thing I do is... Because the bear is going to be like, what the fuck is that? And run away. And if not, it's looking for a fight. There's nothing I could do. What, what that sounds like a, a horny fucking 
bear looking for no, some bear oh, pussy. <laughs> that would attract the, the the mama bear. We know she's hot to trot anyway if she's got kids already. Well, she's not looking for bear pussy then. No, but that's that sounds like a male bear, a, a hot to trot male bear. This sounds like a male bear. Yeah, that's what a male bear sounds like when it when it's it's going out for an evening. So now, basically, every thirty seconds, I'm outside. I do this, and then I stop, and then I look around. <laughs> do the na- Do the neighbors wonder if they've somehow of a, 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 a an exhib- exhibition from the local zoo has moved next door to him well here's the other thing i'm not allowed legally to kill the bear so all i could do is try to scare it away that's well, the wait only thing is I the bear allowed do. legally to kill you the bear could do whatever the bear has its own legal system that the bear's grandfathered in <laughs> yeah i guess so since before the well because the bears were here first yeah fuck you for going out and fucking with the bear's recreation the bear was there first but yeah, you, you, just because you you don't want to kill the poor. The bear's a mother. The bear's a mother. It's got dependence. I don't. How much do you get to write off a, a baby bear cub on the, on your taxes? But the bear has dependence, so you don't want to kill the bear. You just want the bear to not kill you. That's a fair bargain. But if you keep going out there playing these goddamn prehistoric dinosaur noises and being a general asshole to the to the bear and its wilderness surroundings i'm afraid that you're going to antagonize it i'm going to bring one of my synths out there with me and just start doing this you know you're doing enough damage by the way i have an email here by the way that i have not shared with i'm going to share with you publicly no, you shouldn't Here do that. In, you know, in front of the people. People send emails. It's a private form of expression. I think you're violating a form of trust of whoever sent this to you. I would not read it on the air, whatever it no, is. No, I'm, I'm going to read it right in front of you and everybody, including the bear and the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and everything else. Hey, you got something right before, though, when you said... Oh, well, is that shocking? Well, about the bears. I don't know how much bear experience you have. You never said anything about the bears of... Cornette Creek. I don't know what the hell's going on over there with talking about deer, not bear. But do you know why they wake from their hibernation? Well, they're either they're either hungry or horny. They're looking to mate. So now well, there I, you go. I got some bear looking to fuck on my property. It's just it's such a disaster. Well, and, no, we and I can't if, kill it. Yeah, well, then fuck it. I'm not going to you know, fuck the bear. What? There's a lot of... <laughs> is that your strategy? Is there's that a lot of bears? There's a lot of bear head holders, but there's not a lot of bear fuckers, I'm telling you. But see, you're already damaging the environment anyway. I don't really know if you realize how much damage you've been doing. Maybe you're the reason for the climate crisis we find ourselves in, because Roger, from an undisclosed location, he doesn't say... Sent uh, an email to uh, actually Jim and Brian. He wanted you to hear this because we were talking about your method of dealing with the bees, hitting them with a shovel. It's a snow shovel, even. But well, uh, hold on, you say that like you're surprised. What kind of shovel did you think it was? I was thinking it was a regular dirt digging shovel. I didn't know you just swatted. Maybe that's the reason to use a snow shovel from April through. October or whatever, I don't know. But anyway, Roger writes, 
As a regular listener of the podcast, I have to say I was absolutely dismayed by Mr. Last's shovel-swinging tales of Bumblebee conquest. He should be ashamed of himself. Doesn't he know bees are experiencing significant population decline with a number of species now being considered endangered? It is a significant ecological challenge alongside similar issues like global warming, as bees are major pollinators and important to the production of produce. Seriously, Google what the produce aisle would look like without bees. By shamelessly shovel-swatting bees, you, Brian Last, are doing the lizard people's work. This is what the reptilians want. In the immortal words of Nicolas Cage, I must once and forever implore you, not the bees! All the best from Roger. See what you've been doing? Roger out. And and also, hold on, I've got another, wait a minute. <clears throat> oh, yes. Hold on here. All right, we're holding. Just one second, holding. What the hell's going on over there? It's because I was trying to find the right paper. This is another person taking you to task for one of the questions you read and and, and some of the ways that you went about it. As long as we uh, move this, past the bees, I'm okay with that. Well, we're we're past the bees. Now we're on to the birds. Because this email is for the birds. It's from Sean. <laughs> Mr. Cornette, I must take umbrage with one of the questions read aloud by the pizza pervert Brian Last on a recent podcast. <laughs> what the fuck? Pizza it was pervert. about well, it's just what you've been come to be known by because of your bizarre, delusional, and demented thinkings and theories normal. and ideology concerning pizza normal and correct well this one was the one you read about women wrestlers and nia jacks complaining about old johnny ace and his perverted ways because he wanted to see more booty pants now i'm not an ass man myself but i don't see what the big deal is it seems like people have been complaining about scantily clad women wrestlers for decades now and while I'd rather see properly trained wrestlers having matches over a return to the Divas area any day of the week, I'm tired of the double standard here. Brian, it's a double standard. Because. What's the standard? Before we get to the double standard, what's the standard? Well, no, see, everybody's complaining about the, the women having to dress provocatively. Provocatively. But Sean continues, are not the men more often than not wrestling shirtless? Is it not commonplace to see guys wrestling in what folks outside the business might term underpants? We all know the reason The Miz has managed to stay employed as a wrestler for all these years is because Vince McMahon caught sight of his thighs and told him to start wrestling in trunks. Um, in fact, throughout wrestling history, every old photo of wrestlers I've ever seen has shown them wearing trunks and little else. Oh, the humanity. So let's not pretend that this trend is based solely on the whims of one sub-average man and his taste for the stink wrinkle. For all I know, Johnny Ace likes to wrap himself in latex and hang from the ceiling on fish hooks, but that doesn't change the fact that wrestling in revealing or otherwise limited clothing is part of wrestling and the wrestling business. Hell, the MMA people don't even wear shoes, barbarians that they are. Good point from the other side. What was the point? I don't even know what any of that was. I kind of dozed off. What was he saying? The point was when old Nia was complaining about Johnny Ace wanting the girls to dress more provocatively. Well, on the other side, it's a double standard. Nobody 
says anything about the men being out there in just almost their birthday suit. For well, heaven's sake, the men are nearly are, naked in front of the world. Are the nipples men, and everything? Are the men being directed to look that way? Does Johnny A say, you know, oh Finn, uh, you know, hey, g-string? Well, you know, how does it work? Well, what do you think would happen if one of them showed up trying to wrestle in a beekeeper's outfit? Who? Anybody? Not anybody. I think some of the bigger guys, they would accept that and be like, oh my God, this guy's forward thinking. A beekeeper. We haven't had that before. The bees are endangered according oh, to come on, according remember drive through. A Bastion Booger? Oh no, they Did fucked I him. Say more? I wish they would have gone with the first gimmick they gave him. Friar Ferguson, the drunk monk. <laughs> he came out, he had a couple squash matches on Raw. He would dance. He was dressed like Friar Tuck. He would dance and then he would drink wine. And the fucking hair around the, this <laughs> hair circle thing that the monks have, yes. I think they should have called him Friar Fuck. That would have worked maybe in ECW. I don't know if that would have worked on a USA Network in 1993. But anyway, it's your show. It's Friar your program. Fuck. I just a real, I got an update, though. I got an update. Uh, because we we talked about wrestlers going, the a question on, well, I guess it was the last week's drive through right? We do so many of these programs. Wrestlers going to funerals and kayfabing at funerals. Yeah, that was last week. <clears throat> it certainly was. That's what I said. Thank you for validating that thought. And I would mentioned and pondered out loud and said, I bet Bo James will know. And son of a gun, wouldn't you know who won the pony? He did. And got to us with this information. I'd asked out loud. I wanted the ultimate test would have been, did Ron Wright go to Whitey Caldwell's funeral? We were talking about, Guys kayfabing the heels and the baby faces, even in a funeral situation. Sometimes it was done. Sometimes it wasn't since it was a, it was a big, the David Von Erich uh, funeral flair and a bunch of guys went to show their respect for a, and you know, an athlete. But in some of the territory days, you know, with the, you still kayfabe the funeral anyway. And the answer to it was Ron Wright. And some of the other heels in the territory got snuck into the funeral home early before the funeral that day so that they could see Whitey Caldwell privately, but they did not attend the funeral, which is sort of like a a more morbid version of when Magnum T.A. had his car wreck in Charlotte and was in the hospital, Flair and... I guess Tully and Arn and, and whoever was with them at the time got snuck in the hospital through the back door. And at night, I think Doug Dillinger, who was a Charlotte police officer for years and years, set that up so that they could see him, but the public wouldn't know about it. But that's, you know, so that is the, and remember Ron and Whitey were the guys that coordinated where they would live in town so that their kids would go to different school districts and wouldn't have to go to school with each other specifically 2K Fabes. So they went to some links in those days. And in a similar conversation, Bo James and a bunch of people reminded me that it was B's Restaurant in Chattanooga that had a Lazy Susan buffet. We were talking about the guys going to the buffet in Chattanooga. And the, the they just had all kinds of food, and it would go around and around, and you just pulled it off as it came in front of you. It was It was a wrestler's dream come true. For one low price. I think in those days it was like four ninety nine or whatever. You know, I don't know if timeline-wise it works out. 
The killer Kowalski always said that he got the name Killer because he was actually visiting Yukon Eric in the hospital, and the news people all showed up, and he had to pretend like he was actually trying to kill him instead of visiting him to see how he was doing. And one of them said, oh, you're a killer, or whatever it was. I think he may have been called Killer Kowalski before then, actually. Yeah. But there's an example of trying to keep kayfabe in the hospital. You actually go, you think you have a safe route you can visit, and then you have to change your plan real quick. Well, and actually, um, the story is, as, as Walter, not to be confused with Walter, told it, Killer Kowalski, was that he, he felt bad because obviously Yukon Eric had cauliflower ears and, you know, those are more susceptible to damage. And it's, it, Mick Foley will tell you that since he lost one in the, you know, ropes. But apparently it was a deal where, and I can imagine this happening, where his the shin bone with the laces of the boots uh, came, when he was trying to do a knee drop, it came down across the side of his head and tatered him and, and tore the ear off. And Kowalski went to the hospital because he genuinely felt bad about it because he legitimately tore this fucking guy's ear off. But when he walked in the room and he saw this, because Yukon Eric was a big fucker for the day, wide, like 280 pounds and had the big chest. And he had his head wrapped up. They had the the pack on the the missing ear and tape all around the head and everything, and he looked silly, and Kowalski laughed at him, laughed at the sight of him, rather. And then, as, as according to him, you know, somebody heard him laughing or saw him laughing at what he had done and, and took it that way, like, oh, you came to gloat, you no good son of a bitch. You're a killer. You're a killer. <laughs> hey, that's good. I like that. Um, but anyway, and I should mention also real quick that I've had another, since I've talked to you, what day and a half since I've talked to you, I've had another productive day with another 75 or 80 packages packed up for Cornette's collectibles. More will be done as soon as we finish here. JimCornette.com. We're down to a little over 300 individual orders to fill and we will be caught up with the backlog on the action figures. But of course there is no waiting on the t-shirts and the autograph graphic novels and such and such at jimcornette.com. And Hotchkiss Featherbottom thanks everybody for not inundating him with complaints about, hey, where's my shit? Because he's shipping shit as swiftly as shit can be shipped and also as swiftly as shit can be signed and then shipped to him to ship. All right, well, it's my there, show. But it's your show. Yeah. Do you have anything what we else? to talk about today? I don't know. We don't have anything to review. That's a nice little change of pace. Boy, that's a positive. Uh, there, there were things that happened this weekend, but none of them were worth watching. Did anything happen this weekend? Well, the SmackDown and the Rampage. We covered that on the... On the <laughs> we covered uh, that. <laughs> we covered that we weren't covering it uh, on the experience that we taped on recorded as the kids say on uh, Saturday morning instead of Friday the 13th because of all of our other issues. So, yeah, we're up to date with all the bad wrestling. Well, do you have any emails you want to uh, enlighten us well, with? Well, God damn it! <laughs> now that you're just reading everyone's secret emails to you. Well, all right. I thought you might want to jump in with something interesting first, but 
I did have another email. We can jump into this discussion. I did have another email that I've tried to find and couldn't find the exact email, so I've lost the name. But the gist of the question was, is a moderately long-term listener, not from the start, but he's been listening for a while, but he's heard me talk about the amounts of cash that could be generated in wrestling back in the territory days, but he also knows that he's heard us talk about guys getting checks or what their check was. He's seen uh, my paycheck stubs, some of them that were reprinted in the Midnight Express scrapbook, and he was just wondering, so what's the deal, the cash, the checks, how did guys get paid, did it differ from territory to territory, and what's the daggum deal? Would you like me to extrapolate on that, Mr. Last? Please extrapolate. <clears throat> well, I'll be glad. I'll be glad. I'll be glad to extrapolate. Um, I'll be glad to listen. <laughs> the, wrestling has has always involved a lot of cash in various transactions. Um, not all of it, and most of it, didn't benefit the boys. Most of that benefited the promoters. Because we've mentioned that, especially in the territories and especially in spot shows, in high school gyms or, you know, local facilities, rec centers, that you would go to in small towns, not the major arenas in your territory, people didn't buy. There, I guarantee you there wasn't a credit card machine or any way to use a credit card, not only in any of the spot shows that Christine Jarrett ran around southern Indiana and Kentucky, but probably even at the Evansville Coliseum itself. They had a ticket booth with a lot of dollar bills for change, and, and the tickets were five and six bucks, right? So the promoters benefited a lot from the amount of cash that these shows every night of the week, every week of the month that they ran year in, year out, could generate. But that's not where the boys made out with uh with their <clears throat> with their cash payoffs a lot of times in the territories guys would get cash in in form of draws we've talked about those before a draw they didn't do draws in tennessee i'd never heard what the fuck they were until we went to louisiana because jerry jarrett and them knew that a guy that was working for them on tuesday night might, they might never see him again after that he might not be there on wednesday night so they weren't going to give him a fucking draw against the money he was earning that week. Except if you were, if, if Lawler or Dundee or handsome Jimmy Valiant or at the time Austin Idol or whatever, if they needed a thousand dollars to buy a car or whatever. Yeah, here, but for the most part, no, but where the, uh, uh, cash payoffs came in a lot to the boys and Brian, you can probably suggest a couple of other towns, but they were the standalone towns where the promoter, like Sam Muchnick in St. Louis, Paul Bosch in Houston, when they were not necessarily affiliated with another, with a full territory, and they would get some of their talent from other booking offices, and they would fly in some of the guys, they were noted for paying in cash. And that didn't always go for Paul Bosch because obviously, especially after he became partners with Watts, it was paid through the Mid-South office. But the stories are out there with Sam Muchnick's payoffs. Dick the Bruiser, 
said one time if if he was supposed to get $537.23 for a St. Louis show, that he would get an envelope with not only the cash, but also the two dimes and three pennies in it, right? And it would jingle. Yeah, Mushnick didn't round up or down. Yeah, no, he did an exact, he was probably the only one. And other times, you know, it, it, before the territories formed full-fledged, uh, the 50s, and it even lasted into the 60s, if, if a local promoter, large or small, ran a town and he booked guys from a, another booking office that was running a full-time territory, a lot of times those guys would get paid in cash because it was not considered you know, a regular, a regular town for that booking office they were working for. And those were all, there were all kinds of those deals in the old days before the territories got modern and, and had formed kind of, um, you know, habits and taken over everything. There were still those town promoters. And then in, in the modern era, it, it came back to cash when the independence started. Because before that, like I said, when the territories got formed, then everybody started getting paid pretty much by a check for a week or some places two weeks, most time a week. And that lasted pretty much everywhere because now the territories are legitimate businesses. They got to pay taxes where they're they're Believe me, they're not paying the boys and not reporting a business expense like that to the government. They're just taking in money and not reporting that income to the government. They reported every expense they could. And that's where the guys started getting in trouble with the income with the IRS because they were not good at paying their income tax. And now all of a sudden they're getting stooged on by the promoters. <laughs> they're being turned in in effect just by the promoters doing what they're supposed to do. And then when the independence came in, is where I was going with the close of that, that's where guys started getting paid in cash again. But this time, and I can tell you, I mean, the the statue of limitations has somewhat run out, and I'm pretty anal with my reporting anyway. But yes, a lot of wrestlers on these independents that sprung up in the 90s, if they're getting paid $500 or $300 or $1,000, whatever the dollars are, do you think they're going to, and they know they're not going to get a 1099 from that person, that that person is operating under the radar at the fucking Rollerama, and most of the people in the town don't even know that show's going on, much less the government on somebody's tax return. So they're taking that cash, and wherever it goes, it goes. That, again, it came back to like it was in wrestling to some extent in the 30s 40s 50s before the territories so we kind of came full circle uh but i thought of a story actually when i was thinking about this how people got paid in different territories this is one i've never told before i know people are gonna say oh my god a new one but i, j I hadn't thought of it in years but when we first went to mid-south wrestling me and bobby and dennis condry okay the way you got paid in Mid-South for Watts was on Wednesdays at Shreveport, the television station where we did local promos during the day from nine o'clock until three o'clock, along with the TV formats and your booking sheet and copies of any memo that Bill Watts wanted to 
give out to the boys on what to do, what not to do, was your check. And what Watts would do was he would hold a week back. In other words, most territories, I'd come from Memphis. If the Memphis week started on a Saturday and ended on a Friday, and you got paid for the Saturday through the Friday on the following Monday at the Mid-South Coliseum, they'd hand you your check. Did I explain that fairly succinctly, Brian? I think so. Okay, but Watts would hold back a week because he knew from experience, especially in that territory, and the guys would crack up. Sometimes guys would have been staying in a hotel and leave and leave a hotel bill. Or sometimes guys would fuck something up or do something to get some heat on them and take off and and uh, um, no show. And to prevent that happening, to have a little bit more leverage, Watts would hold a week back. So you would get paid for that Saturday through Friday that I just talked about. Ten days after that Friday was over with, in the middle of the week on the Wednesday at interviews, he always had a week of your money. So if you just decided to say, fuck it and leave, well, if you didn't show up to pick up your check, you weren't getting that fucking money, right? So you had a little investment in not leaving any unpaid bills in the territory and giving a proper notice, and then you'd get all of your money up to the last day you worked. So that's what he did. But at interviews, Brian, you remember there's a couple of local promos still floating around out there where Bobby and Dennis are standing behind me, right? Right when we first got there. And then you don't ever see them except they came to be on camera for some of the the uh, uh, last stampede promos when Watts came out of retirement. But what happened was at first, all the top heels and all the top baby faces were supposed to show up at promos. And obviously the incentive to get there was that's when you got paid every week. But Bobby and Dennis came for the first week or maybe two. And then Watts and everybody else saw and realized they weren't going to say anything. I did. And it's not like we had five minute interviews. These were the two minute or less local promos. And that was the thing. I did the talking. They just stood there and made mean faces. So Watts said, you know, it would keep them more special if we didn't see them until they were in the ring for the match. So they don't, <laughs> so Bobby and Dennis actually had heat with everybody else in the territory at first. Cause they were the only top guys that didn't have to come to promos. Cause I was handling that part as part of the deal. And I would just pick up, um, their checks and, and bring them to them. But the first week we're there, we see the checks laid out and everything. Okay. Boom, boom. And I think it was crusher Darso, Barry Darso. But Nikolai Volkov was there. To Butch Reed was there. Could have been anybody. Said, do you, "Do you guys know where the bank is? What? What? With the the bank where we cash our checks? Oh no, no. Oh well, you can follow us over. Okay. So when we're finished with promos before we go to the TV taping, we follow Darso and Butch Reed, and and I think Buddy was probably there by the Landell. Maybe he came in, but whatever. Everybody, all the heels went over to this bank and cash their checks. And I guess, I told Bobby and Dennis, I guess this is what they do here. Okay, so we went and cashed our check. 
And then we're carrying it. It was our first week and it was, it was like a thousand dollars. It wasn't that much money, but the, the guys on top had checks for a couple grand. So then the next week, again, you know, Darso said, hey, are you going to follow us over to the bank? I said, well, let me ask you, why, why do they want us to cash these checks right as soon as we get them and here in Shreveport and be carrying all this cash around on us? And he looked at me like I had turds hanging out of my mouth. And he said, well, well, we just always, apparently, and, and, and I think Nikolai chimed in too, they had just gotten the habit because they had been making no money previously, whatever. So when the checks got big or they started working for Watts or whatever, and they started getting these big checks, they just ran to the bank as quickly as they could and cashed them while they were still good. And was, this is Mid-South fucking wrestling. It, it's not like they're, you know, they're teetering on the precipice. And my thing was, we always wanted, we didn't get draws on the road because we we wanted the, we don't want to waste the cash. And we didn't cash the checks. We took them home and put them in our own bank account. But some of these guys were just, just to have the cash and carry it around. They were, I was like, fuck, especially some of the places we were going. We, the, people wanted to have a, a personal word with me and the Midnight Express to begin with, without us carrying thousands of dollars in cash around at three o'clock in the morning. But now there, there have been also big cash payoffs in the modern era that in, we've talked about Jake in Mexico. And what was that? 1994 while he was working for me in Knoxville for much less money, he got 25 grand in a box or whatever for shaving his head in Mexico and had to take his own bag man um, to, you know, sit in a car, lock himself in with the money while Jake had his head shaved. Was that Dallas Page? No, it, remember it was, um, oh, God damn it. it? Um, help me, what was his name? Uh, Scott Stud? Was that him? Or Scotty Riggs? I think it was him. He's a Georgia guy. Makes some sense. Yeah. Yeah, he went he went there specifically. Jake got him booked on the show and and traveled with Jake specifically so he could hold the fucking cash in their rental car with the doors locked while Jake had the match got his head shaved and then Jake ran to the rental car in the parking lot and they jumped in it and drove to the airport and spent all night in the airport at the gate so that they were in public and nobody could repossess that money you know jake's a paranoid guy but i don't blame him one bit for, for no, that no one. That, that's what anybody would have done <laughs> yeah i mean in that situation because uh, yeah no so that's you know that's kind of the thing is the territories guys got paid by check most of the time i've explained the difference <clears throat> you know when it was a standalone town and there were always individual deals made but you know that that's the thing is is it just depended on the individual territory as to whether they gave guys draws. I mean, when WCW took over from Crockett, that's the thing that Chip Burnham was this guy they hired to work in the office and do settlement at the box office and everything. And he had never been around wrestling and he was just, he was a nice guy, but he was just so thrilled to be in this, this wild, glamorous show business when he's like an accountant. And he would come in, everybody would be sitting there fucking miserable with their head down because either there was nobody in the building or we were just, we were all working for TBS. So we were all miserable. 
And he'd come in with the biggest smile on his face. Anybody want to draw? You know, because he got to give out the money to the boys and they'd take it because it was in front of them. But I never get because then you're carrying cash around. You're going to spend and your check is going to be smaller. If you realize you're going to San Antonio for three days or whatever, take enough money at the start, use your credit card, whatever the fuck. But anyway, but from, you know, from the start of wrestling, the the financial situation it, after the days of the 30s when the world champion, whoever it may be, held all the pull and whatever promoter controlled him held all the pull, it was always set up to where the promoters got first count and the promoters got the benefit of any shady business that was going on, you know, uh, under the table uh, or in cash transactions. But the boys got away with a lot before the territories became full-time businesses and were giving out 1099s and shit. And then the, the boys couldn't get away with anything. But I mean, you know, the, the amount of money was still ridiculous. And if you, if you did your bookkeeping and paid your income tax, I mean, for, I've told the story about that time I saw Lawler's check in Memphis. And the way we were paid in Memphis, I said, was on Monday in the Coliseum. They'd hand you your check. But this was in Louisville because it was through Christmas and New Year's of 82, 83. And they ran to Louisville on a Monday night. And Lawler's handing everybody's check out from his little room that he used in the, the gardens downstairs. You go down the stairs, turn right. And that was his private office and everything. And I walk in there and he hands me my check and it was like $575 for a week, right? This was December 82, January 83. That would work out today on our handy inflation calculator to about $1,700. And I was the absolute lowest paid guy in the territory. And so he hands me my check and as I'm standing there, his check is laying there on the fucking counter bigger than Christmas, three feet from me as he's handing, you know, me mine. And I look and he sees me see it sort of like when the fucking NBC executive caught George Costanza staring at his daughter's cleavage on Seinfeld. Fucking And I'll never forget what he said. He said, if you stay in the business long enough, Jim, one of these days, you'll have a check like that. Because he's being a smart ass. And I said, is that for one week? It was for one night. That was the the December, the Christmas week show of 82 in Memphis, where Lawler and Bockwinkle were the main event, and they sold out and did a $39,000 house. And he got 10%. Did the percentage he got in Memphis change at all after he finally got the deal he was supposed to get from Jared in 83? I do not know, because... I didn't see any more of Jerry's checks, but one would think that it, I mean, it, depending on the pull that he had, and I mean, everybody knows how important he was, but to Memphis, but he had had that deal for a while. He got 10% of the house in Memphis. Then in 83, he became 50% partners in the company. So think about this, for example, when, when me and the Midnight Express worked with Bill Watts and Junkyard Dog in the Superdome, allegedly, everybody in that match should have got paid the same thing because we were in the main event. It was a five-way match. So me and the Midnight got two grand apiece. Now, 
one would say, well, I bet he gave Junkyard Dog more, and I would suspect that, except by that point, Dog was so out of shape and hadn't been getting a lot of sleep and really did not hold up his part of that match, and, and Watts wasn't happy about it. So he probably got two grand also. Did Watts give himself two grand? Well, some people would say, well, he probably paid himself whatever he wanted. But here's the thing. Watts is was entitled as owner of the company, and I've got a couple of canceled checks that Jerry Jarrett did the same thing for himself. Watts paid himself in that match as talent and had to report that on his personal income. But at the same time, since he's the owner of the company, it was a business expense that he was writing off of Mid-South Sports. So it probably worked out. Uh, but again, if those if five guys made a total of $10,000 just for that one show, and there was another 20-something people on the show, and then you times that by seven shows that ran that week, he's paying out a significant amount in payroll. And that's, you know, uh, with uh, with Lawler, I mentioned that $3,900, which, by the way, is almost twelve grand today for one night, 10 miles from his house, by the way. That's the kind of thing that they were doing. I mean, that was a big house. That was a sellout. But every week in Memphis was twenty grand. So it's, you know, that's a ridiculous amount of money for guys that were either figured in as top guys or own part of the office or are instrumental to the to the operation, as they say. How many guys back in the territory days that you know of, because it probably almost definitely happened that you wouldn't know of, other than the wig-wearing guy in East Tennessee, how many guys got in trouble with the IRS during these years? Oh, because of, of just it being a pure cash business and every promoter skimming. Um, you didn't often hear about. Well, let's put it this way: if the promoters had problems with the IRS, they could probably usually settle them fairly quickly because they had money. You'd hear pro with guys having problems with the IRS. All the, I'm not going to mention anybody's name, although it's. This is not like this is a secret. Ric Flair has, if he hadn't talked about it, other people have talked about it plenty. Crockett paid his taxes one time. I think Vince paid his taxes one time. There was a guy on WrestleMania 96 that when the payoffs for that show were being discussed, Bruce Pritchard brought up that he was having, the guy was having troubles stressful troubles on his mind because he owed the irs like 70 grand or whatever and so vince said all right make us pay off 100 grand that way he can pay the irs pay the tax on this and he he can do something positive and boom he's out of trouble that's just the way vince would think he wouldn't do any mathematical formula he'd say okay we'll take out a spot on the card had a good match yeah we don't need him worrying about that give him 100 grand and that's why a lot of the promoters did it back then. But you would, to further to your question, I've known personally a, a bunch of people, uh, wrestlers, that had issues with the IRS because they 
they either it wasn't uh, it, usually it wasn't malicious it was just not being a grown up and doing it and and then i know one guy that was so scared of them that when they sent him a letter saying you owe us money he never got an accountant and he never questioned it he just sent him a check every time he could send him a check and finally i had to say wait a minute how are you gonna what you don't know what else you owe them or what you're gonna come up with you need somebody to intervene in this and but uh, but most guys didn't keep their records they you know blew a lot of cash you know taking draws so it was real easy and there was the story i was not obviously involved in going to Japan and back in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, but I've heard this story from multiple sources that Greg Valentine's, wh whoever he, whatever wife he had at the time, whoever he was married to at the time, they either had trouble or split up. And she's the oh, one Julie. who's... Julie. Okay, well, oh, you know her personally then. Well, you know, I, I, she, I think she was on TV uh, for Tuesday Night Titans in the early 80s, a time or two. Yeah. Uh, but they broke up or whatever, and she stooged on Greg and, in by extension, a bunch of the guys about the money they were bringing back from Japan in cash. They would get paid for their Japanese tours by Baba or Inoki and bring. This was when top guys were making, you know, what five, six, seven, eight grand a week, and they'd be over there sometimes for a month, so twenty, thirty grand. On their on their person, it was a simpler time back then. Flying too, you didn't get searched and patted down and anal probed, you know, when you got on the plane. So that came to an end, and certain people got in trouble for this. So yeah, that's the that's why I always talk to guys in OVW. The first thing we'd tell them is, hey, pay your taxes, get an accountant. You may not have made money before, but you, and you may not be making money now, but if you succeed in where you're wanting to go, you will, and you need to be prepared. And we had guys come in and uh, guys come in. I actually had one of my accountants come in and talk one time, and we gave out a lot of written information. And that was part of the talk in writing your finishes down in your book, your date book, which not only should include your match and your finish and your spot on the card and what you were paid, but your expenses and your travel information and everything for the taxes you're going to be paying. And it, I guess now in these days, guys are more with it. You don't hear about, I mean, you hear more about GoFundMes for in-ring related injuries than guys needing money to pay the IRS. Whereas before there were no major in-ring injuries it just guys were broke because they didn't pay their taxes well jim perhaps if they didn't pay their taxes they may want to just close their eyes and go to sleep <laughs> well perhaps well tell them hawk well yes and that's exact. and i'll tell you what it's never been easier to do that and we're going to tell you a lot about it today on the program, folks, how you can get better sleep. Did you know that poor sleep, Brian, can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? If you sleep less than six to seven hours a night, 
you can reduce your white blood cell count. And if your white blood cell count is reduced, then you can't fight off the illnesses and diseases and viruses and bacteria that are all around us. So the best thing to do is try to sleep as much as possible. Because when you wake up, maybe by then, the world will be a better place. And if you have trouble going to sleep or sleeping through the night, you need a little assistance. You don't want to do this the pharmaceutical route. You do not want to do that. No, folks, what you want is natural sleep-promoting premium ingredients that have been triple lab-tested with no THC. Well, you might want the THC, but this doesn't have any. But nevertheless, it's Beam. Beam and their Dream Powder, the best-selling healthy hot cocoa that makes everybody drop over like a rock. As soon as you sip this, folks, boom, you don't know where you are, what's going on. You're in blissful slumberland. 98% of people surveyed fall asleep faster when taking Beam Dream, and 99% of people experience better sleep quality, and that 1% of people had to be woken up by an EMT standing over them, slapping them. No, that is not true. Let's not put fake statistics out there. That one right there was for entertainment purposes. There is no 1% that needs to be revived by EMTs. I keep hearing about these one percenters we can't trust. Well, folks, if you just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, I prefer the milk. The hot water, well, you know. But stir and enjoy it before bedtime. What's your bedtime? It just depends. If you're a minor, if you're under the age of four, get parents' permission before stirring this into milk. Also, you can find out why Forbes and the New York Times are all talking about Beam. Why it's trusted by the world's top athletes, all you got to do is go to shopbeam.com. That's S-H-O-P-B-E-A-M. That's the way you spell beam, just like beam dream, see? Beam. Shopbeam.com slash J-C-E. Use the code J-C-E at checkout. You're going to get $20 off for a limited time only, but it's worth it. You will sleep. You will wake up refreshed. You will have no side effects. You will have, as a matter of fact, there are a lot of things that keep you up at night, Brian. If you, 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 your noisy neighbors or your partner wakes you up. I used to have noisy neighbors. The last time I lived in a, an apartment, the screaming and the yelling and the wild sexual perversion that was going on. Thankfully, this woman's husband came home about 11 o'clock every night and put an end to it. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it was rough trying to get some, but with Beam's dream, <laughs> you will sleep like a baby. I'll tell you what, You'll it was rough. You'll wake up every hour crying and pissing the bed. Um, nevertheless, again, go to shopbeam.com slash JCE, use the code JCE at checkout and have blissful slumber for the rest of your days. Well, Jim, before you put us all to sleep with that beam spot, let's move on with the show and let's get to some exciting wrestling news. Let's lift everyone up. There's a lot of things happening in the world of wrestling. Lift everyone up. Actually, there's not that much going on, but let's talk about a few of the things that are. <laughs> a video has gone around, several different versions of it from several different angles. Apparently from an independent show in Georgia, a wrestler named Joe Black was assaulted by a fan 
One of the most brutal headbutts I've ever fucking seen on camera. <laughs> Jim, have you seen this footage of yes. the incident? And what are your thoughts? A lot of people were wondering specifically what your thoughts would be, considering you've talked so much in the past about incidents with fans. Well, I guess, Brian, go ahead and ask me the question that's on everybody's mind that everybody's been asking and talking about. Whose fault was this? Go ahead and ask me that question. Whose fault was it that this happened? Everybody. Everybody. Uh, so to paint the visual picture for those of you who might not have seen this clip, it's a small independent show. It's a small building. And... They've got a, a a rail around the ring, kind of like the bicycle rack rail. You know what I'm talking about. And it's a fan camera with, you know, their phone. And this guy, apparently the match is over and he's walking down around the ringside, the wrestler, you know, jaw jacking with the fans and whatever the fuck has happened. And suddenly he stops and the you don't see in the video, you don't see the fan that he stops in front of on this video for a second, but you see the wrestler, he did the hat flip. You know, when you, when somebody says something to you or you got a, you're in a jaw-jacking situation with somebody and you reach up and you knock their baseball cap off, right? That's what the wrestler did. And then he starts to go on, but the guy immediately pops right up to his feet and gets up on his side of the rail and gets up in the guy's face and he gets back in the guy's face. And this fan is fucking this giant Georgia meathead. His head's as big as a bushel basket. He's probably, he's as tall as the wrestler, six feet, two or three or whatever. And he's got to be 350 pounds and not, he's one of these Georgia farm boys. that's not all fat. He's just fucking his He's 10 pounds of shit in a five-pound bag. He's as packed everywhere as he can be. He's big everywhere. His toes are big. And they jaw jack for a second, and this fan just takes this giant melon head and boom, and headbutts the fucking wrestler who's a jacked-up motherfucker himself and puts him down to his knees. And then the guy comes back up and starts swinging, and then here comes some more plainclothes civilians some of them are on the railing side and some of them are on the are on the ringside side of the railing and some of them are on the fan side of the railing that's the only way that you can tell the difference unless you know these people personally as to who the fans are rushing up there who the friends of the fan are that might be going to pull him back who the people are supporting the wrestler they all look the same and <laughs> And this guy, the fan, is not backing down from anybody. Here comes some other guy, takes a swing at him from the wrong side of the rail again. I'm going to talk about this. We'll break it down in a second. And either throws a few punches at the guy and misses him or connects, and the guy just doesn't sell it because he's fucking ginormous. And it's just chaos and then the, there's some did you see the part where there, one of the other wrestlers and whatever is just concluded is still trying to work in the background of all this chaos and people running in this direction and throw punches at somebody else in an obviously working way behind this whole thing <laughs> but it, the answer of who was at fault everybody here number one and and a lot of people also ask how would this have been handled in mid-south wrestling it wouldn't wouldn't have happened in mid-south wrestling uh, 
I'm not trying to blame the wrestler since he already got fucking his ass kicked by the fan. He didn't get just pummeled. He got headbutted. He got the worst of it. But when the wrestler walked by and flipped the guy's hat, technically, I don't know about every state in the union. We might have Stephen P. New on at some point to break this down state by state, but pretty much as a standard definition of assault, the wrestler committed it because he, in an unauthorized fashion, touched the fan or the fan's fucking, what do they call it? What's the legal term? What he's wearing, his, his body, his bodily presence, right? If you spit on somebody, and I've found this out in several incidents, if you spit on somebody, that can be legal assault because something from your body is going to theirs, right? So there, it's not a, there wasn't a felony, but just if you want to stick to the letter of the law, which I assume probably nobody in this barn in Georgia is going to anyway, but technically the wrestler committed a form of simple assault. Then <laughs> this fucking guy who wasn't going to take that shit, standing up, it was on Twitter that he had been throwing slurs, whatever that means these days. So maybe he said something that triggered Joe Black, who is an African-American. So you got that going for you. And we are in Georgia, and this guy did look like a fucking Trumper. But as soon as the guy stood up, well, not even as soon as the guy stood up, as soon as the heel flipped the hat off, in Mid-South Wrestling or in any other territory pretty much except some off-brand spot show and down south or somewhere in a small building, there would have been uh, uniformed police officers. There would have probably been uniformed police officers in the territory days, even in a small building. They might not have been as quick to react. But the uniformed police officers, as soon as they saw the hat incident, would have been right there. And as soon as the guy stood up, more of them would have come, and they would have never got that close. Also, the wrestler... I'm not saying that none of the heels in the past have ever... have, have not done the hat flip thing. But especially in the, the Southern territories or in Chicago or in the North, any place you thought there was going to be trouble, you might be walking down the ringside jaw jacking with all of the fans in general. But after the match is over with, especially you didn't need to pick one out to get heat with. That's what you did in the first part of the match. When if they're a little hard, you pick one of the front row, especially an old woman or somebody that's vocal and you start getting on them, and that brings other people into it, but there was no need for that. So the wrestler was wrong in stopping in front of that guy specifically, because I don't care how big and bad Joe Black is, looks like, or thought he was, unless the guy had said something specifically to him, everybody knows what I'm talking about, that he didn't like, there was no reason for him to stop there. When he flipped the hat, Technically, he's instigating, he's committing assault. The fan stood up and took it further. thats I don't even know if that's simple assault, a just premeditated headbutt when the, the wrestler was obviously not in the act of physically threatening him verbally, maybe, but not physically. There was no fight going on. 
so the fans going to get popped if they do anything about this for escalating that. But especially after the headbutt, then let's just assume that, okay, now we're not even talking about what would have happened in the territory days because there would have been uniformed police there and the wrestler wouldn't have done what he did and especially wouldn't have done it to who he did it to. That big and fucking obnoxious looking a fucking guy. Then everybody else, they don't know all the wrestlers that came to supposedly help. Not one of them hopped the rail. They were all fighting from their side. If you're going to fucking punch a fan, it don't matter which side of the rail you're on. You, If you've committed that far, you're getting named in the lawsuit anyway if there is one. So just to not look like a bunch of feckless, incompetent pussies, you can't fight any motherfucker, especially a guy that big with a rail in between you. Did you see everybody? And they're leaning. And all the guy had to do was step back a step or two, and they're leaning even more. They, I don't know if they would have been able to knock this that guy down if they'd hit their best shot, but they're literally swinging over a fucking bicycle rack. So there was no way they were going to take this fucking guy down anyway. So it was a bunch of wrestlers who have never seen an actual fan attack or intervention trying to fucking swipe at this guy who was just laughing him off. So the wrestlers didn't know what to do. There was no security. If there was security, there was the ring guy and everybody else dressed in plain clothes that didn't know how to handle it either. And then you see one guy on the in the audience side of the rail trying to ask the guy if he, if he wouldn't mind leaving while people are screaming, throw him out! And he didn't look like he was too anxious to go. So nobody knew what the fuck they were doing there. And it was, it was, it wasn't even a real good fight. And I'll tell you one thing, right, wrong, or indifferent, and lawsuits be damned, if any top heel that felt like he had a fucking chance at, against this guy had been headbutted, by this guy the way that Joe Black was, he would have been on the same side of the fucking rail with that guy before anybody could have stopped him. But nobody knew what to fucking do because they were all fucking shocked. Did I describe it about like you saw it? You did. I mean, when you said he went down to a knee, let's just say it was pretty quick. He was back up and ready to swing at this guy right away. Oh, yeah. No, he would. But I'm just saying it. It You know, the headbutt was harder than the fucking hat flip. <laughs> he flipped the guy's hat. And the guy said, Poom, there you go. And he went down to his fucking knee and came back up and ready to go, but didn't go over the rail. I know from experience, as even with a couple of feet reach with a loaded tennis racket, if you're swinging over a rail, you you don't have the best leverage. The wrestler in the ring, who I'm assuming is the wrestler that Joe Black had just been working with, who immediately went and grabbed his arms after the guy hit him, almost to pull him away from it. Is he doing the right thing or the wrong thing? Well, it, it, the way you describe it is he was doing the wrong thing, and if you're trying to break up a fucking fight, and you're dedicated to breaking this fight up instead of helping your friend, the way you don't hurt your friend is by grabbing his arms and pinning them down. You get in between. You make it harder for the other guy to fucking hit the guy you're trying to assist. You don't fucking hold his arms so the guy's got 
free reign to here, boom, 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 take one of those with you too. So, but he didn't fucking know. I assume nobody's been a bouncer in that equation there. But yes, he was trying to not, you know, see his friend go to jail there. But uh, but no, don't come over and, and grab the guy that you're kind of on the side of and you just don't want him to get in trouble and pin his arms down when he's in the middle of getting fucking pickled by some giant colossus from South Georgia. Not to justify the guy headbutting Joe Black, but this is part of the issue with wrestlers being so comfortable at ringside. And with most wrestling yeah. audiences that we see on TV, you don't have to worry about this kind of thing. You can flip their hat. We've seen MGF, MGF, MJF do this in the crowd. Of course, he had a security guard with him, but we saw him walk through the crowd and do this, I think, once. Well, what have I been saying all this? What, you know, that the big fat fucker in this video we're talking about, if there had been a security guard in a cute little polo shirt that was about half his size standing there next to this guy, you think he wouldn't have headbutted him? He did it in front of the whole building, in front of God and everybody. All attention was on them. It wasn't that, like this was a little sidelight. Everybody was seeing what was going on. You get the right guy in the right frame of mind. Maybe he had been throwing slurs and that had part to do with it on both sides, or maybe he was drunk, or maybe he just a fucking asshole. But you get the wrong guy in the wrong place. That's another reason why, no, we didn't have to go over and flick people's hats or rip up their sign or in any way try to reach them because that would give them the idea to read. They already wanted to. They already had that idea. They just, it, it, remember I told a story just a couple of weeks ago on how I'm yelling at this one guy and he fucking stood up and folded his chair up and picked it up and Bobby Eaton jumped down and grabbed a chair and folded it up and every man in the fucking ringside section stood up and folded their chair up. It just takes one thing with the right guy in the right place for him to think, okay, I can get away with this or I have some justification and boom, here you go. And then if there's no, there's not only no security at most of these wrestling events, especially independents, they're the ring crew or t-shirt guys or, hey, Bill, you go be security. Show everybody where their seat is. Don't let them throw nothing. But even as we've seen in the buildings that do have legitimate security services, they're they're not expecting shit like that. And they, yes, this was a little outlaw mud show. But that guy could just as easily buy a ringside ticket to the fucking next show in Atlanta. And somebody else could go over and just think, well, I can just, flip these people off or give them the finger or flip their hat or whatever. Cause everybody knows it's all a show and then you're holding your teeth in your fucking hand and here shit's coming. They're climbing over the rail. And I'm trying to remember who it was. I want to say Jade, but it may not have been Jade, but I've seen one of the women wrestlers in AEW do this. Like that's the thing. You're that comfortable with the fans and the fan who did the headbutt. Pretty sure that if you had, if you could take him and drop him into any wrestling show in that area 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. It's the same guy. That's the fan yeah. you can't be comfortable with. They still are out there. It's just they don't go to wrestling so much, but that's the Well, and, and here's the thing. 50 years ago, the whole building would have been that guy. They might not have been that big, but they thought the same way. So that's why you didn't go out there and fuck You didn't need to go out and fuck with him on purpose. They were already ready. 
That's that's why you when I yelled at people, I yelled at the whole building. You know, on a spot show with an old woman in certain situations. Yeah, you'll yell and make fun of whatever. But no, you don't, especially after the match, if it was hot or anything, you don't need to instigate. I got a security guard to come in the ring one night in Freedom Hall in Johnson City. One of the fucking um, local, I think he was college football player that they hired to be security. He got so fucking pissed off. We were fucking yelling at people. He slid under the ring or under the rope. And I'm, I went back and was telling the building manager, I'm like, I'm paying these fuckers. Guess what? Well, you're good. But uh, but yeah, that's <laughs> that's the thing is, is you know, nobody's expecting it because people don't do it anymore. But that this wouldn't the, the fact that he headbutted the guy would have made the wrestler would have made news 50 years ago. Uh, but the rest of it would not have even happened because that the opportunity would not have presented itself for the guy doing that in a building with no security and none of the other boys even knowing what to do. That's, that's why, you know, especially in Louisiana, as we've talked about, the heels would wait to make sure that the, the main event heels got back in, in towns that, you know, you knew you were going to have trouble in because you couldn't always trust the police or the security and they were still trying. But the, you know, the boys, it's better to have in those situations, your friends and people who know what to look for rather than, you know, sometimes even the cops, but better to have both. Boy, someone trained that fan. Cause he looked like he can cut a good promo too. When he had a shirt ripped <laughs> and he was pointing and yelling, I was like, Oh, I believe him. No, that that's every guy on the corner in fucking South Georgia. They can all talk. Well, I'm sure after such a traumatic experience at the wrestling show, sitting front row and having some guy respond this way to what may have been racial slurs, we don't even know exactly what were said, to be fair. What was said, to be fair. But perhaps you want to go home and just go to sleep. You know, we're this talking is- <laughs> about going to sleep a lot today. But I'll tell you what. Here's the thing. We are known worldwide. Everybody knows that the Jim Cornette podcast and the Arcadian Vanguard podcast will help you sleep like nothing (laughs) else. Don't say that. No. Oh, yeah, folks. I'll tell you, after you've drunk your beam, you don't want to just lean up against the wall. You don't want to just sit out on a stump. You want to have a nice, soft place to go to sleep, and that's where the Helix Sleep Mattress comes in. Because we've talked about these, we've had so many of the Cult of Cornet listeners write in and give us their testimonials. Did you know that the Helix folks were awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and by Wired Magazine? I can understand GQ, but I thought the people reading Wired magazine never went to sleep. These mattresses are so good that they even put people on cocaine to sleep. You just lay down on this thing, fuck, instantly you're zombified and you're in slumberland. And, you know, here's the thing. A lot of people, you know, couples fight, right? For example, I want to sleep on a semi-firm mattress. Stacy wants me to sleep on the couch in the basement. So a lot of times there's there's couples disagree on how they want to sleep, but you can take the Helix Sleep quiz with your partner. 
and they will match you to a mattress that works for both of you. You go to helixsleep.com. That's H-E-L-I-X, by the way. You take the two-minute quiz. You sleep on your back or on your side. Are you hot or are you cool? What You know, all that type of stuff. They match you up with the mattress. You order it. They deliver it to your door. You unbox it. The unboxing is magnificent. And it doesn't take five people to drag this thing in your house. And you can get one that your significant other is happy with. People have slept over one billion hours on Helix mattresses. That sounds so nice right now. They just don't have enough to do, those people. They've got way too much spare time. But they do have over 12,000 five-star reviews, folks. So, once again, right now, if you go to helixsleep.com, they're offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for just our listeners at helixsleep.com slash JCE. 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They will pick it up for you if you don't love it. They'll also pick it up if you don't pay for it. So keep that in mind. Folks, once again, helixsleep.com, up to $200 off and two free pillows. Take a drink of the beam. Sleep on the most comfortable surface in America today, the Helix Sleep Mattress. And why are you listening to us? Why are we even doing this program? Let's just, let's just take a nap. Oh, don't even joke about that because we could do that. <laughs> we could do that. We could do that easily. Yes, we could. Well, it's my show. That's a deep subject for a shallow mind. My show, it surely is. Well, Jim, let's get a question here on the show. And this one was sent to Corny Drive through at gmail.com from Daniel O'Connor in County Limerick, Ireland. Greetings, Jim. I have a very good hypothetical question for you. Well, we'll be the judges of that. If Bret Hart had stayed with Vince in late 1997, how would he have fit into the oncoming Attitude Era? I know for a lot of Bret's fans, his booking in WCW was poor to say the least. <laughs> but if he had stayed with Vince, would we have got Bret Hart as Mae Young's lover? No. And Bret pulling a hand from Mae Young's vagina on Raw? No. What are your thoughts on this hypothetical situation, Jim? Well, we wouldn't have got that. Uh, Brett would have still been a major, major star in the wrestling business for significantly years if he had stayed. And I mean, you know, of course, and everybody knows why he left. We've covered that to death. And it's not like that he didn't make the right decision at the time because you couldn't have a time machine and you couldn't tell what was going to happen. You couldn't tell they were going to botch his creative from the start. You couldn't tell that. Goldberg was going to give him a, you know, concussion or whatever. We also didn't, well, let's be honest, too. Brett didn't have a choice. Vince was saying, I can't pay you. I'm not going to pay you. I'm going to let you out of the contract. Go see if you can get a better deal somewhere else. Well, I mean, there was, there was the choice that he could have said, well, no, Vince, just what can you pay me? And I'll stay for anything, which would have been kind of crazy. But there was that choice, but nobody would have taken it. But it, this is the hypothetical. If he hadn't left, if he'd have stayed. So if he'd have stayed, if he'd have said, Vince, just give me the same thing you're paying that guy over there and I'll stay or whatever. Okay, now he's staying. He would have been a big star. He would have, the one that he would have had the issues with would have been shit stain. Because 
he would have been the ones, the one pitching to Bret Hart to stick his hand up the donkey's ass and pull out the watermelon or whatever the case, right? And Brett would have been going to Vince McMahon and there would have been significant strife and back and forth. And Bret Hart, I would say, 85 to 90% of the time would probably have gotten his way and it would have got changed. But then therein lies that the, we know from experience that if you do that, then Shitstain would try to figure you in less and write less for you, which is a blessing, except if you're not getting on television to begin with. But then if it was Bret Hart and of the major star that he was, and then Vince McMahon would have been saying to Shitstain, well, what, what the fuck are we having Bret do it? Well, Bret's being a problem. Wait a minute, I got to do it like FTR. Brett's being a problem. I've told Eleanor about this many times. What a problem Brett is. And it would have it would have been uncomfortable. And then whoever was in Brett's periphery, which still would have probably included Owen, probably not Neidhart. Uh but whoever was in Brett's on Brett's side in Brett's social circle would have been on his side and it would have created a lot of strife because I believe of anybody. Brett would have probably been the one to push back against shit stains, Jerry Springer show bullshit, probably more than anybody else there. The younger guys were glad for the opportunity. The older guys were, you know, happy that, that they were making money because they were on top. But even then, you know, Undertaker, um, all of them, all the guys that, would have had an issue with their creative were of the level where they could go directly to Vince McMahon and polish up what they didn't like. And that's, you know, so I think that Brett would have obviously been a, still been on top in the attitude era. Everybody wanted to work with him. He would have taken everything that he did seriously. So he would have had issues with shit stain and Vince McMahon would have had to got in the middle of a lot of them. And I think Brett would have persevered uh, in most cases. And it was, it was the same thing in TNA with, with you know, only I was the one going to Jeff Jarrett on behalf of whatever top talent was going, what the fuck is going on here? It would have, it would have been Brett in, in the WWF because he's probably the only one that Vince McMahon would have listened to and had full access to him that would have put his foot down as stiffly as possible. Does that make sense to you, Brian? It does. Considering well before Survivor Series, when Brett started teasing being a heel and then kind of became the heel babyface U.S.-Canada thing, Vince and Brett got physical. Brett shoved Vince in the ring when they were taking the cage down. Vince pulled Brett's shirt over him and was hitting him. Even if Montreal doesn't happen, and knowing that for good or for bad, Vince Russo has a reputation of, who's my boss? I'm going to try to tell them they should be on TV. They really need right. to be on TV. Do you think we may have gotten, obviously, a very different version of it, but would we have gotten a Mr. McMahon as a heel if Brett had stayed? Without that incident, because remember, we've talked about it. Vince still thought he was going to be the babyface afterwards and just frame it, well, the time-honored tradition. Brett was selfish, whatever. 
without that Montreal incident, I don't know, and the subsequent fan response to Vince and to the whole thing, I don't know that anybody could have convinced Vince McMahon that he could could be, should be, or it would be beneficial for him to be a full-fledged heel owner. That's because that's the thing that that got Vince all the way there. Vince was fully in support of the idea that the Canada, U.S., bizarro world, Brett's people like him, the United States likes Sean and his band of Mary Jackoffs. Vince was all into that even before, you know, Shitstain got involved in everything. But I don't think that he would have considered taking that step to make himself a full-time on-air heel rather than what he had done for the previous, what was it, 12, 13 years he'd owned the company. So that, you know, but uh, I still, you know, Brett was, as you mentioned, Brett and Vince were already going to be at each other's throats on the on the program and the people in Canada were going to take it how they took it and etc but I don't know if Vince would have gone all the way to Mr. McMahon without Montreal was he itching to be physical though because I mean that's the thing he got physical oh, he loved, a couple yes, times yes yeah he see he he wanted to be a wrestler when he was a teenager and you know idolized Dr. Jerry Graham and his dad wouldn't let him and his Dad wouldn't let him do things in the 70s when he was an announcer. I mean, it's not like he was constantly pitching ideas. He didn't do the Shane thing. But down down deep in his mind, he wanted to be physical. He wanted to be one of the boys. He wanted to prove he's got, what, balls as big as grapefruits or whatever his thing was. So, you know, and and I mean, it just took him till he was, what, 60 years old to actually get the chance to do it or almost. All right, well, let's get another question here on the show, Jim. This next question, sent to CourtneyDriveThru at gmail.com from Gary in Ireland. Oh, I thought you were going to say Gary, Indiana. I recently read that the AEW video game is way over budget, with one insider saying that the budget has gone from $20 million to upwards of $80 million. Jesus Christ, what? That can't, no, what? I will see as we talk How about this talk, what I can Wait find. a minute, they, they build office buildings in major metropolitan areas for $80 million. Bridges across mighty rivers, Ben Steele and their bare hands. How much does it cost to build a video game? We have to build a bridge in a video game too. Furthermore, Kenny Omega, who has been positioned to front this project, is butting heads with the video game developers. On top of this... Wait a minute, headbutts are popular these days. Are you telling me <laughs> that... I, I'm sorry, I, wait a minute, let's just stop here. There's, I'm sure, a lot of people out there listening to this program. I don't know about a lot. There's people out there listening to this program that are fans of old Twinkle Toes McFinger Bang there, old Kenny Olivier, and think he's a great wrestler or whatever. But I ask even them, Brian, would you put Twinkle Toes in charge of anything involving $80 million? Again, we don't know if $80 million was the number, but $20 million. $20 million. No, I would not. No. No. I've been driving a car since I was 16 years old. That doesn't mean I know how to design or build one. 
So I'm sure he's played a lot of video games, but if 20 million or 80 million or any million in between of that, somebody else that's got a lot more experience in that from a business standpoint, not a gaming standpoint, is going to be in charge of those millions and millions of dollars. I found an article here from a website called Game Rant by Rory Young. Rumor AEW star Kenny Omega could be having problems with game developer Ukes. Oh boy. An unconfirmed report claims the All Elite Wrestling Superstar, excuse me, that All Elite Wrestling Superstar Kenny Omega is butting heads with AEW Fight Forever developer Ukes. Wait a minute, that's, that's the company's name, Ukes? Unless I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, I believe that would Ukes. be. Ukes. The report comes from Sports Gamers Online, which explains that there is a significant amount of tension between a developer and Kenny Omega, who has been leading the game's direction from the USA. The report goes so far as to say Omega is frustrated and hating working with Ukes. One source went so far as to say it came across as if Ukes was trying to take advantage of Omega's inexperience with game development. <laughs> well! <laughs> I believe that. Well, yeah, but now wait a minute. Now hold on here. You mean to tell me that some company that does this every day of their life for a living is having problems on this 20 to $80 million project when the point person for the other side is a guy who's played a lot of video games and never built one in his life. Hmm. I can't see how that would be an issue. In elaboration... It's explained that there have been multiple arguments over the direction of AEW Fight Forever. The result is that the game's development is... Some people wanted them to fight for a minute and quit. The result, That's what I heard. The result is that the game's development is way over budget and even demanded additional investment beyond the additional allocation. <laughs> budget constraints have also led to various features being cut back or cut altogether. The one area of the game mentioned as being cut back is Fight Forever's roster, which has since been confirmed to be 50 wrestlers large. Well, they need to cut back their real wrestler roster. Say that three times fast. Is this an epidemic uh, within AEW where they need to find people that have absolutely no experience whatsoever in doing a particular thing and put them in charge of it? You know, I never even finished a question the uh, person sent in. Oh, well, finish it. Again, past the video game now. We've discussed that. Explain that. On top of this, AEW's action figures are also said to have not turned a profit. And when CM Punk debuted with the company, AEW could not fulfill their t-shirt orders as their t-shirts are outsourced to pro wrestling tees. (sighs) All of the above... And a sizable roster bring me to my question. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't mean to interrupt the question again, but the director of or the head muckety muck in charge of merchandising has tons of experience in merchandising for major sports franchises. It's the wife of one of the Hardley boys. Well, to be so, fair, she has so tons she's, of, she has tons of experience working with pro wrestling tees. Well, no, I <laughs> here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. You need people that have ex- at, at this size of of the issue, the company, and this reach, and this 
national television show, you would want people who have done merchandising for major sports franchises and can know how to handle and anticipate that volume and deal with these major arenas, many of whom demand a percentage of merchandise sales that you've got to be careful to negotiate ahead of time. And then you've got to deal with the suppliers of self-same merchandise, but you don't want to outsource it because then you're just admitting that you don't know what the fuck you're doing and you're letting somebody else get first count. And if they have problems with the action figure line, they could call me because obviously I've made a great success out of those things. I have a trick or two up oh, my sleeve. They know, they know what they're doing. What do you know about releasing like 40 different Cody figures and then he leaves? Well, I'm just saying that uh, if they wanted to make a profit on action figures, they could talk to me. If they want to just do action figures, they can keep doing what they're doing. But that's the th Tony Khan went around, and then you could ask this question. Tony Khan went around when he got all these people together and said, okay, what are you all, all interested in doing, even if you have no knowledge or experience of self-same thing whatsoever? I'm going to put you in charge of it. And he was like, he was a fantasy camp. Well, I've always wanted to be a video game developer. Well, then bless you, son. Well, I've always wanted to run a merchandise department for a major company. Well, then bless you. The other funny thing is this probably, not probably, I would bet money this came up during the first negotiation. What do you want to join AEW? Well, you know, Hunter is offering me all this to go to WWE. Well, what do you want to join here? Well, I just want a fair wrestler's contract, and I also want to book the women's division and do video games. All right, you I got it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So anyway, well, it comes from the top because the booker never booked. Quitters never win and bookers never booked. But what was the question? Here was the question. And again, we're talking about the video game. We're talking about action figures. We're talking about T-shirts. We don't know any of the actual figures. This email from Gary in Ireland is running on rumors, but take whatever you want into account and put it into this question. All of the above and a sizable roster bring me to my question. Does AEW need their own version of a Nick Khan to tidy up their shabby business practices? Boom goes the dynamite. They got the wrong con over there. They got several of the wrong cons. They got all kinds of cons, but none of them are the right con. What, you know, obviously, the WWE product sucks swamp water. We know that. It's boring as shit. They're not clownish and unprofessional and over-the-top silly like AEW is. They're just boring as shit. But they're making money hand over fist. And again, Vince McMahon has won every wrestling war that he's ever been involved in, not by having the better product, but by having the better business. Can you doubt that people looked at Crockett in the 80s side by side with the WWF and said, what is this phony ice cream bar bullshit? Crockett was neck and neck with him, but he had a converted convenience store off of fucking South Boulevard and three elderly secretaries. And Turner Broadcasting, they had a big company but none of the people in the wrestling division knew shit from apple butter and it got worse and worse and vince capitalized on that and let it fall apart as it was going to cuz when they did have 
TBS owned the company for 13 years, had success for two, got drunk with it, and flamed out. Every challenge that Vince has had from any other wrestling promotion, again, it wasn't about the product. It was about the professionalism of the business and the structure of the business behind it. And whether you like it or not, he gets people that are experienced in the business world, not necessarily in wrestling. But if you're, if the thing we're talking about here is making money, making a profit, and being the industry leader, Nick Khan's a fucking Hollywood guy. That's why they're talking with all these people. That's why they make money on every goddamn thing. That's why they have the power to mistreat all of their wrestlers. Because they're making a fucking fortune because this guy can get anybody from NASA to fucking Boris Yeltsin on a fucking phone. Right? It's Tony Khan had contacts, but this is a whole nother level. And they have the WWE has the track record. They've got the the proof of ownership of the market in place where they are by far the biggest company. They're the ones that everybody goes to if they're interested in a wrestling product, if they don't know anything about wrestling. But the people that are that are knowledgeable about wrestling and looking for a good product, they don't have any major movie studios or television networks. So, so yeah, that's that's always what's going to be the difference between any other promotion and the WWE is these people in the WWE now that are running it. They may know not not know anything about fucking wrestling, but they're goddamn on another level in every facet of a business. They could be they could be a football team, a baseball team, a fucking movie studio or whatever. That's where Vince beats everybody. If Tony Khan can't find the right executive or right executive team to hire to straighten things up in AEW. Or he can't figure out a proper transition. No, perhaps he could do that just fine. But maybe if he's saving all that money on executives, he wants to put that money into fine art. Well, you know, that's true. Because here's the thing, Brian, in today's uncertain environment, you got to take care of your family. You know that. You've heard that before. Sometimes you even say it. Sometimes you don't. But every <laughs> once in a while, you always think you got to take care of your family. You got to be financially secure. And no matter who you are, you could be a major superstar. You could be a big time celebrity or just Joe Schmo. Look at Bruno Sammartino. We've been talking about Vince and his empire. Bruno Sammartino was an icon, was a hero, the living legend. The crowds went wild with cheers. Every time he entered the ring, the media was in love with him. But you know the story. There's a documentary coming out on Bruno soon. As soon as I figure out how to use iTunes, I might watch it. When he was a kid, he was a 98-pound weakling. He was small. He was bullied. But he trained harder, and his grit and determination and his wonderful mother brought him to the United States. He lived the American dream. He became the world heavyweight champion one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And what did Bruno say? Every time he was asked, he said, I never wrestled for money or fame. I just wanted to be able to take care of my family. And that's what uh, something we should all aspire to, folks. So right now, if you people out there in the sound of my voice, you need to take care of your family, well, for heaven's sake, don't go out there and try to 
to hunt and live off the fat of the land and feed your family possums and raccoons. Don't go out there and try to get a job of all things. You're not going to make any money at a job these days. What you need to do to fill the gas tank and put food on your table, invest in fine art. Folks, we've uncovered a company that allows normal people like you and me, not Brian, he's very abnormal, to fight back against inflation and reach the pinnacle of financial security through fine art. And folks, we're not just, yeah, I know everybody can't just go out and, and buy a Van Gogh or a Monet. You can't do that. There, you Van can't Gogh even buy and Monet. Either them either. You should know you this. Can't, Come on. Fine art. You can't even you can't even buy a nose off of a, a Rembrandt for six figures anymore. And boy, howdy, if you try, just try to go into one of those museums and cut the nose off of a Rembrandt and see the looks you get. Don't try that. You'll get more than looks. Don't try that. Well, some people will throw popcorn at you. But now what you can do, the folks at Masterworks, they have gotten the, 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 the scoop down on how you can invest in fine art along with other folks and reap the benefits and these aren't collector's plates, folks. You know, when you buy those collector's plates from the Franklin Mint, some can go down in value. But Masterworks works by masters. It's in the title. How can you not want to own a piece of a masterwork, which is obviously a work by a master? Folks, you can't just walk into a museum and pull these off the wall, right? Well, some people can, but it takes a lot of planning. Don't and if even, I were you, the first no. the first thing I'd do is start looking at the alarm systems. That's where you got to start. No, start doing After something you else with your the time. Alarm systems. Well, no, well then Earn you, what gotta you go, got. You've got to go and find the families of the guards, and where they live. And then there's a whole negotiation process where, you know, you got a nice family there. It should be a shame if something happened to them. You got to go through all of that. This is easier with Masterworks. This is nothing Masterworks, like that. No. Well, not at Masterworks, because this is easier. Uh, the other way, you, you got to do it all manually when you knock over the Metropolitan Museum of Fine Art. Are you playing drums you, on your desk? What's going on over no, there? No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying I'm, I'm vehement about this. you got to go through a lot like of trouble it. when you knock the museum over. It's got like a beat. But when you, yeah, it's easy to dance to. But when you go to masterworks.art <laughs> slash gym... It's easier. You can invest in art without having the the nasty prison sentence being dangled over your head. Don't slash the painting. Slash Jim. Yes, don't slash the paint. And that's another thing. I saw a documentary the other day on one of the finest art thieves in Boston. They were talking about the Winter Hill Gang and Whitey Bulger, but he mentioned that these amateurs did the, the, the uh, museum heist up there where they just cut the paintings out of the frames. And he said that the paint's old, it chips, real amateur work there. Folks, you really, you need to take them frame and all, and you need to get involved with the guards' families, know where they live, know their routines, so one of them can be picked up and detained just long enough so they know you're serious. But again, there's planning involved and blueprints. Better go to masterworks.art slash gym. You'll get priority access to the Masterworks folks, you'll skip their wait list because people are lining up to do this. And then you will be able to purchase the pieces of these fine arts, and that's the plural of fine art is fine arts, 
and you'll you'll just you'll make a fortune. And they'll explain it to you on the website. Again, masterworks.art/gym. masterworks.art/gym and if you want to see important regulation aid disclosures, go to masterworks.io/cd. That's only for regulation A, but I understand those are the most important disclosures. You should always disclose your regulations and regulate the amount of your disclosures. Masterworks.art slash Jim. Obviously, you know exactly what you're going there for now. Fine art and money, and you will reap benefits somehow. Go there. I don't know if it's a masterwork or a masterpiece, but there's been several questions Jim sent in about a recent practice that WWE's production team has been using. Have you seen any feedback about this, about apparently in various video packages they're doing, they're using footage of fans from like 10 years ago? I saw that. I said somebody on Twitter had put up the screenshots of like a 10-year-old event and something that just happened and the same guy is making the same face and the same shirt at ringside. So I they, they I mean they they've been good in the past at at they will have the cameras during downtime at the start of the show scour um the crowd for people that they have seen or think are going to give them good facials or whatever, or a cute kid or something or whatever. But now they're not even bothering to take that. They're just, they've got stock reactions from the fans for when, give me a, give me an oh shit face. I mean, what else can explain it? They've got it ready to go. Give me the oh shit face or give me the, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that happened. Yeah, there's no real question other than, I guess, what do you think yeah. of the fact that they're doing this? I mean, it's bizarre that they're doing this. Well, they're recycling, uh, retreading the wrestling angles. They might as well retread the reaction shots to them. I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's just, I you know, the downtime with the pandemic gave them way too much time on their hands and way too many ideas. And once they've figured out they can have the fake fans on the Thunderdome screen and they can now pipe in the fake noise even though they've got fans back in the arenas they're obviously not jumping up and down and screaming they just sound like it they can manipulate this thing and do whatever they want with it and then it's almost like the viewers at home are sitting there going why the fuck is everybody else going crazy over this shit when I think it sucks but there you have it our next question, Jim, sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from Dan in Jackson, Tennessee. Jackson, Tennessee. Hello, Jim and Brian. I recently listened to the Jake Roberts episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, in which Jake mentioned he got his start in wrestling as a referee. He went on to say he would recommend that same path to anyone getting into the business. I would love to hear Jim's thoughts on if he would agree or disagree, and the subject line actually says, Jake Roberts' advice to young wrestlers. <laughs> well, actually, that's probably one of the better pieces of advice he's given any of the young wrestlers. Um, what was his name? Fred Platt. That was Jake's name when he was the referee. Fred Platt. That was one of the two names. He had, a, he had another name, too. Oh, what was the other one? Oh, I have it, because I have all the uh, Lil Al um, Vavasor uh, photos, and it has everyone's name written on the back of it, so yeah. I have it. 
I can't remember off the top of my head, though. Ah, but anyway, nevertheless, the reason for that was he was the son of Grizzly Smith, and everybody knew who Grizzly Smith was. He'd been a star in wrestling for 15 years as of the mid-70s. So they, you know, as they often did with somebody when they were probably going to get into business as a wrestler, but they needed to get experience, they were still in the process of training or whatever, well, let them referee and get some experience in the ring. and. I mean, it's not for everybody. I would not have suggested to Dave Batista, you know, well, we're going to break in as a referee. <laughs> Look at him, right? If 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 it was visually ridiculous, no, you wouldn't do it. Or if people already knew who the guy was, if he was, you know, an amateur uh, football player or college athlete or whatever the case. You know, you wouldn't do that. But for a lot of guys, that gives them a chance to get in the ring. And especially if there's a veteran in the match, he can see the veteran call in the match. If they do it, you know, well, I guess they don't do that in the ring anymore. But you know what I'm saying? That was the the point. You could get a feel for it without actually having any attention on you. And since Jake, you know, had had grown up with his father in the wrestling business, but still... You know, as as we know, the kids didn't travel on the road with the uh, guys that much back in the territory days, and especially Grizzly's family. So it was a way for him to get some experience in a low-pressure type. I mean, there's still pressure on the referee, but you know what I'm saying. And then he broke when he broke in, he actually worked in Tennessee for a few weeks as Jake Smith Jr., which Grizzly's... Nickname was Jake because his real first name, as Jake Roberts's is, is Aurelian, A-U-R-E-L-I-A-N, and nobody could spell it or pronounce it. So he was Jake Smith Jr. So Jake's talking about breaking in as a referee. Is there any specific job that you think is good for, you know, if you have someone young hanging out around the wrestling matches and they want to break in, what can actually teach the person who wants to break in the most? What job? Well, it depends on the person. I mean, there's all kinds of... I mean, photographer did good for you. You earned the ins and outs from ringside. I was about to say, and and so was Heyman, Eddie Gilbert. I mean, you know, we uh, being a photographer was a way to, especially when you were younger, there was no age limit on who the ringside boy photographer was. So that was a way you could kind of get around the business and you know, see it up close and kind of, you know, hear things that you weren't supposed to hear occasionally. And even if they weren't ready to smarten you up, uh, you kind of, you know, figured things out. That was good, but refereeing can be good. Ring announcing. If you've got a decent voice and or you, you know, are not shy about speaking in public, the ring announcer gets a pretty good view of everything. He's involved in one way or another in all of the matches and, uh, you know, it, it kind of sees how the show flows, but it depends on the person, whether you're a cameraman or an announcer or a manager or a referee or whatever you are, you can find ways to learn not only about what you're doing, but also, you know, the other shit that everybody else did. That's what impressed me about MJF. The first MLW taping that I went to Early in the day, when they were still wiring up the audio and the cameras and setting up the lights and everything, the equipment set up, MJF was walking around in the building. 
and he was looking at everything and he came over to me and and uh my god now um rich bikini i almost <laughs> i almost started to not name rich but rich bikini was the the uh announcer with me and he asked us a few things about television production and i think we were going over maybe doing some wild lines or something what do y'all do well we're recording some lines they can drop in or whatever the case he was asking questions about everything and that you know that's the way that you figure these things out and if it doesn't work out that you're a main event wrestler for whatever reason you get hurt or you ain't good enough or you don't get a chance or whatever but you also know how, know how to do commentary or you also know how to do production sit in the truck whatever the case you know it depends on the person you can learn from all those jobs but you don't just study that job you study what everybody else is doing too all right, Jim, our next question sent to Courtney Drive-Thru at gmail.com from George C. Powell. Hello, Jim and Brian. I've been an avid listener of both podcasts for almost two years. Over the years, I've learned a lot about the wrestling business. I would like your thoughts on if small crowds bring more energy to a wrestling program. <laughs> I've recently watched some Impact Wrestling which has a small crowd, but they seem so energetic <laughs> and appreciate the action in the ring and put the AEW crowd to shame at times and make them look like uneducated and unsophisticated garbage wrestling fans. <laughs> Hope you are well, gentlemen. Sincerely from Vicksburg, Mississippi. <clears throat> By the way, once again, the subject line I'll read here, do small crowds have better atmosphere in pro wrestling? Well, I mean, again, if you only have a hundred people in a place, they are the hundred people that wanted to see that more than they wanted oxygen at that moment, right? When you got down, those are the most faithful, dedicated fans that you could possibly have. And so they're going to make noise with whatever they see or whatever they encounter, but it's always better to have more of those people. I mean, a small crowd does not help the atmosphere. A small crowd kind of brings it down. But I mean, I guess today guys are used to, you know, small crowds. But back in the day, I mean, if it was TV, you did your best because it was going to be seen on television. It was going to live on tape and other people were going to see it rather than the, just the few in the building. But if there was nobody in the building, then no, it didn't help the show because who wants to go out and take fucking bumps and, you know, potentially injure themselves in front of a hundred people. And you know, your payoff's going to be the shits because there's only a hundred people there. Now, later on guarantees came in, which I've mentioned, you know, both helped guys and also killed a lot of people's in incentive to work harder. But even if you're, if you've ever been a star of any kind and you're in a building where it, it seats a thousand and there's 800 and they're really into it and you're going to do your best if you give a shit at all about what you're doing. But if, if when it gets down to where there's 150 people someplace and regardless of the amount of money you're making, what the fuck? How can you 
like I said, I guess now the guys are used to that and they don't think about it. But how can you psych yourself up to go out there and take bumps and get hit and be stiff and work hard, whatever, 150 fucking people looking at it? It's just, I mean, you know, that's another thing about the business that has changed is I've mentioned this. I think maybe when I went to Madisonville, Kentucky for a spot show once a month, that for whatever reason, Teeny just had to run that town for a while. It'd be eight guys and a referee on the card, and there'd be 175 people there. And I'd never seen anything like that. They didn't run pro wrestling shows in front of that small amount of people, at least in my experience back in those days. So they they may, all the people there may be screaming and yelling and jumping up and down, but when you're in that small of a building and that small of a crowd, I just don't see how you can, you. that's where you test your ability to work and find a way to entertain those people and keep them busy and give them what they came for without killing yourself. But it certainly doesn't add to the atmosphere of a wrestling show when there's fewer people there. Jim, we've received several questions. I've been surprised, actually, lately how many have come in, uh, just lately, about referee Aubrey Edwards. And the <laughs> crux of a lot of these questions appears to be... I, j I saw the video, too, that... Um, I don't know if that one's AEW botches. I think it was Kenny69MeDon on Twitter. Uh, but they did a special <laughs> video on all of her various weird facial expressions and odd stances and Bob Fosse dance routines that she does just focusing on her. And it was hilarious. Go ahead. Well, the questions seem to be about if she's doing too much. A lot of people seem to think that she's distracting, that she's doing too much. Other people don't have a problem with it. So to make it about her and make it actually more about referees in general, how much is too much? Should a referee be completely unnoticeable or... Should they be engaged in the action? We've seen Tommy Young and Brian Hildebrand get into the action. Aubrey Edwards is doing her own form of uh, <laughs> stage production there. But how involved should a referee be? Well, yeah, here's the thing is that we've talked about Tommy Young as best referee in the business because he reacted to everything, but he reacted to everything as he would react to it. It looked perfectly. If you knew Tommy, he wasn't overstating anything or he wasn't exaggerating anything or whatever and the facial expressions and the stances he had if if the thing was happening in front of him for real that's kind of what tommy would look like so you want to notice the referee they can't just be in the background they shouldn't get in the way and they shouldn't you know hinder the the match that the guys are having they should help it but being completely unnoticed does not often help the match. Tommy Young or Brian Hildebrand or Earl Hebner, a lot of those guys would help the match, you know, the way Tommy Young worked with Flair. That's why Flair loved to have Tommy referee his matches because Tommy would stand up to him like an official when he was cheating and and it put more heat on Flair when it when you showed that the referee was trying to stop this guy from doing this shit. You know, they Brian had his own thing where he was different than Tommy, but he still, he didn't react to take away. He reacted to magnify. And, but there was not these 
ridiculous poses and these multitude of faces that she puts on and she's cringing and flinching from everything or she's there was one where the the two girls in the match were that's the one with a squaring up in the middle and then they were squaring (laughs) up in the middle and then suddenly like a fucking boom camera just wheeled in she comes and sticks her face right in between them with that horse-faced fucking expression on and a slight puppy dog lean of her head so she's right in the shot there and and, in slow motion it was hilarious when (laughs) when they started we mentioned that she actually had a game face and looked like she was taking it seriously and was the only referee that even tried to have any authority that was in the early shows well then since then they've obviously completely obliterated any authority or credibility that any referee on their roster has because they never do anything they're never taken seriously there's no rules nobody you can't even get them stay in the fucking ring but she's gone over the top with it and now she's more in i guess because they people the fans made over her and they gave her a podcast or something now she's a celebrity too but it's just it's it's bizarre, but it's actually, in some cases, it's more entertaining than the match we're watching. To you know, to see the facials and the weird stances, and it looks like she's playing an invisible, you know, game of twister up in the in the air, <laughs> right hand green. She sees the spot, so I, I I don't know. It's just they're all overly dramatic. It's like everybody in the company had a theatrical background and now this is their chance to to be put on a show kids so i guess to go back to the question is she doing too much yes <laughs> do you dismiss fans who are saying it's distracting do you say oh just live with it or do you no say- if, i mean like i said it's entertaining because a lot of their matches are crummy but no it it if she's reacting to what goes on in a realistic fashion, that's one thing. But again, the ridiculous, the poses and the stretches and the struts and the multiple facials, and she freezes to make sure that you see them. And she, it looks like she knows where the camera is. So uh, they, they just calm the fuck down just a little bit. What they ought to concentrate on is actually telling the wrestlers to do something the referee tells them to do. That would be refreshing if all of them had a little authority in the matches and credibility and was actually making somebody adhere to the rules. That would be refreshing. But just all this gesticulating, she looks like she went to Twinkle Toes' school of ballroom dancing. All right, Jim, let's play a game. Let's get one of our games here on the show right now. Let's play a game. Let's play a game. How about some guess the program? You know, remember about three or four months ago, we said, you know, the goddamn wrestling business is heating up. All these stars coming into AEW and the WWE is responding and the shows got kind of good. And Danielson was a fucking star. And we're thinking, hey, this is starting to be a real wrestling war. And fuck, I'd rather watch my home movies now from when I was six. My, how things change. Go ahead. What's this game we're playing? All right, Jim, this is Guess the Program. You're going to try to guess the year and the location All right, you, of these cards. You sprung this on me a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't do as well as I wanted to. So I'm going to try to be better. Opening match, 
which starts at 8 p.m. The Libyan versus Savannah Jack. The second match. Okay. Jumpin' Joe Savaldi versus Nature Boy Buddy Landell. The third match. Terry Taylor versus Nature Boy Buddy Landell. Wait. So Buddy's booked twice. Yes. Okay. Back-to-back matches, apparently. Yeah. Terry Taylor and Iceman King Parsons versus Rick Steiner and Sting. An elimination six-man tag match. The one-man gang, Wild Bill Irwin and Bad Leroy Brown versus The Missing Link, Chavo Guerrero and Hacksaw Duggan. Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert Jesus. versus Hollywood John Tatum. The Fabulous Freebirds versus The Fantastics. And the main event, Ted DiBiase versus Terry Bam Bam Gordy. Good Lord. Well, it is Mid-South Wrestling, and it's 1980, oh, goddamn, early 1985, right? Or mid-1985. It's not, and I'll, I'll actually tell you just... What? Uh, it's not Mid-South, technically, it's UWF. Oh, well, okay. Well, you know what I'm saying. It's uh, Bill Watts's company, and that is that would have to be 85, because if Buddy hadn't left to go to Crockett yet... But wait a minute, Buddy left early to go to Crockett. Did he come back? Let me remind you, Buddy Landell was in Crockett in 1985. Buddy Landell was fired from Crockett by the beginning of 1986. Yeah, and this was 1986, and this was... I bet this was... Was this a UWF show, but one of the UWF shows that he did in the Dallas Territory? This is... Well, and my hand just stuck to this thing. This is... (laughs) What have you been doing with it? This is the UWF in Houston, Texas, October thirty first, nineteen eighty six, Halloween Day. At the, was that the summit or Sam Houston? This is at the Sam Houston, I believe. Let me just yep. Houston return, uh, returns to the Sam Houston. Oh, I'm flipping this thing all over. This is the UWF PWI Open. The tournament begins, and another interesting thing about this as I flip through this thing, is that this is the first program. This is, oh no, excuse me, I'm wrong there. But this is volume one, number four of the official UWF bulletin. It's not the traditional Houston wrestling look. They, at the end, started using the UWF program look and then applying the insides would be customized by Houston wrestling. And uh, that would have probably happened. I have Houston programs in the traditional style through somewhere in 85 that would have been the last year or so they were in business they did that this next program jim let me find the card here in the opener one fall 30 minutes wally satsumi (laughs) versus wimpy willington oh for god's sake the second match k bell Versus Chief Little Wolf. The next match, as part of a double main event, two falls, or best of two falls, 45-minute time limit, 
Dick Rains versus Bobby McCoon and Abe Cashy versus Lucky Saminovich. Ooh, okay. K-Bell was one of Sandy Scott's favorite wrestlers. He liked old K-Bell. Um, Abe King Kong Cashy, did he not have Vern Gagne's first pro wrestling match in Minnesota in the late 40s? Was he not the opponent? I don't know. I could check on that. I'm not sure. Uh, Dirty Dick Reigns was a big star in the Texas Territory. Uh, Lucky Seminovich was a journeyman in a lot of territories. This has to be no more recent than the late 50s. And I would say probably more like earlier mid-50s. And just because of Dick Reigns, I'm going to say, was it in Texas? First, let me say you are correct. Abe Cashy was defeated by Vern Gagne in Vern Gagne's first ever wrestling match in 1949. And he was Cashy was a big name back in those days. So that was a stunning victory. This card is Sunday, December 2nd, 1951, Honolulu, Hawaii, the Civic Auditorium. Son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. I wouldn't have thought, obviously, of uh, Hawaii because... No, not son of a bitch, Saminovich. Yeah, well, you know what I'm saying. And that was before that they started uh, the tours in Japan. That's right, actually. 51. So this was very early Hawaiian wrestling. Okay, this next one here, the card's all over the place. I got to try to get this one for you. That's the second bout. That's the semifinal. Okay. Australian tag team, Bob Riker and Billy Sandow versus Carol Kowalski and Tony Milano. Billy Darnell versus Ray Thunder. And I'm going to assume that's Ray Thunder Stern. Stern. Just says Thunder there. Marvin Atomic Mercer versus Mike Lordy. Pacific Coast Idol. Is Lordy L-O-R-T-I-E? Oh, no, it's L-O-R-D-I. I think that's a misspelling. And finally, in the windup, two out of three falls, no time limit. Two bitter foes with nary a thought of life or limb. Dutch <laughs> Nature Boy Road <laughs> versus the Zebra Kid. Okay, I was going to ask you, before we got there, was Buddy Rogers on the card because of Billy Darnell, Ray Thunderstern, and Marvin Mercer was, uh, Atomic Mercer, was a star in the Midwest in Ohio, so was Zebra Kid, Um, Herman Dutch Road being advertised instead of Buddy Rogers puts this at what? 1946 or earlier? Um, Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of a clue. Puts him at 46 or earlier, you could say, but not necessarily everywhere. Everywhere. Because he was known by a name in certain places before he was known by another name. That's true. Zebra Kid was George Bolas here, or do we know? We don't know. There's not a photo of George Bolas, Zebra Kid, on here. 
that can that be Billy Sandow or is that a rib in the opening match? There's no way that's. I believe it's a different wrestler using yeah, that name. Yeah, that's yeah. Because um, his photos here, and it's not the. Uh, it's not Strangler Lewis's Billy Sandow. Are we in Ohio? We are not. Are we in Texas? We are not. Are we in New Jersey? Closer to home. We are in New Jersey. We are in New Jersey in 1948? Pretty close. We are in Camden, New Jersey, Monday, March 26, 1951. Ah, but it's Camden, so of course he's Herman Dutch Road because that's his hometown. And apparently there will also be an Easter parade as part of the show. Every wrestler, a top name in the game, and it means all the action you want and like you want it. Top your <laughs> holiday by taking in this throw pack program. Our very best wishes to you and you. <laughs> it says our very best wishes to you and you for a happy Easter. <laughs> all right, well, there's that oh. program. And every every name on the card, a top name. Possibly not the actual real name, but a top name. This next one is probably a giveaway for you, but it still could be a little interesting. So let me uh, go to this one. The opening match, Eric Embry versus Armando Guerrero. Coco Samoa versus Al Perez. Scott Casey versus Ali Bay the Turk. Ninja Warrior versus Buddy Moreno. In a tag team championship match. Although, how could it be? Well, I, I won't explain it. The Sheep Herders and Bobby Jaggers versus Sweet Brown Sugar and Tiger Conway Jr. Oh, I guess it's a handicap match with the titles on the line. And then finally, Tully Blanchard versus Bob Sweetan. Oh, excuse me. And also a 14 man battle royal to end this card well that um that 14 man battle royal gave it away no um, <laughs> we're in southwest championship wrestling um 19 it's the the early 80s I see some guys here that were in Florida in 81. I see a couple of guys here that were in Tennessee in 81. I want to remind you, the Sheep Herders are on this show. There's a giveaway for you because you know where, what well, the timeline and they, and was. They came to Tennessee in 82. Sweet Brown Sugar was Skip Young at that time. Is this... Is this 82 or is it 83? 1983, Saturday, July 9th, at the Hofheinz Pavilion. Or Hofheinz Pavilion, I guess you say? The Hofheinz Pavilion, Houston, Texas. Oh, so this is when they were trying to run opposition in Houston. Yeah. It's the San Antonio Territory and the San Antonio Talent, but they were running against... Paul in Houston with very little success, and with this card, you can kind of tell why. This is also one of the first programs, if not the first program, i got to check my files, when Southwest started doing programs on their own. Because they owed Norm Keitzer money, they just <laughs> stopped having wrestling news or pro wrestling enterprises do their programs and started doing them on their own, 
And they're really nice, but of course, they didn't just owe Norm Keitzer money. This is right before they owed USA Network money. Yeah, they owed everybody money at that point. Here in 1983. Let me go to the next program here. Of course, on the cover is Adrian Adonis holding up Terry Funk's world title as well as Luthez's <laughs> world title. This next one here, Jim. Let me open this up. Uh, okay, here we go. The Brute versus Cowboy Paul Jones. Ooh. Lenny Montana and Mike Pedusis versus The Assassins. Ooh. Kurt and Carl Von Brauner with Gentleman Saul Weingroff versus The Kentuckians, Jake Smith and Luke Brown. And in the main event for a championship I will not name, The Great Malenko versus Dickie Steinborn. Okay. It's the Carolinas or it's Florida. It's the... Can, can I ask you a question? Yes. You say it's the Carolinas or Florida. Obviously, if you just look at the Assassins and the Kentuckians being on the card alone, it would tell you that it could be several different territories. Is the fact that the Von Brauners or the Great Malenko, that they're on the show here, is that what cancels out any thought of any of the other territories those two teams were well, in? Well, I'm thinking... Mid sixties, I'm thinking Malenko was still in good with Eddie Graham at that point, so he would have been possibly working Florida. Dick Steinborn spent some time down there, but because of the both the Assassins and the Kentuckians, I thought about the Carolinas, but then I don't know that the Von Brauners worked there with Saul. So that but they did run have a nice run in Florida. However, the cowboy Paul Jones being the mid sixties, he had he's from Port Arthur, Texas. He uh, worked both the Carolinas and Florida later on in his career, but this could be a complete red herring. Um, the brute may or may not have been Bugsy McGraw in his previous incarnation. Lenny Montana and Mike Pedusis could have been anywhere. Where else, as I think about it, would all of these people in what other territory? I don't see it being... And the brute is not Bugsy McGraw here. Okay. Because it is probably what I would say 1965 or 66. 1962, August 17th, Shit. 1962, a Friday night in Miami Beach. There you Okay. I, I didn't have the year, but I had one of the territories. I thought it was Florida, like I said, or the Carolinas, and then the Von Brauners didn't make sense there, but the Von Brauners and Saul were big in Florida at that period of time. Cowboy Paul Jones had to be a rookie there because he, he would go to Australia in, what, 64 or 65? So anyway, yes, I'm ashamed I was four years off. How many territories back then had three of the top tag teams at the same time? The Assassins, the Kentuckians, and the Von Brauners? Well, a lot of them. Because think how many great tag teams there were back then. Dozens. There you go. All right, Jim, this next program here. Let me open it up. 
Pat Swanson is your referee. Good to know. Vic Holbrook went to a draw with Frankie Murdoch. Huh. Sonny Boy Cassidy defeated Irish Jackie. <laughs> Louis Martinez. There, 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 that's a midget match. Doesn't even say that here. Doesn't even note that. Oh, but here's a photo. Yep. All right. Louis Martinez defeated Ellis Bashara. Bashara. Semifinal match. The Zebra Kid defeated, everywhere. defeated Bill Stedham. Main event. One of the main events. Two out of three falls. 90 minutes. Farmer Jones defeated Elephant Boy. And the other main event. Six-man tag team match. Ellis Bashara, Frank Murdoch, and Zebra Kid defeated Louis Martinez, Vic Holbrook, and Bill Stedham. <laughs> Well, and that's the the old-fashioned way of doing things. Six guys on the card, four matches, including a six-man tag or whatever. Um, Elephant Boy would have been there with Zebra Kid. Luis Martinez, That this is early, early. He would have been very young. I've never heard of Zebra Kid's opponent. Frank Murdoch was Dick Murdoch's father, Frankie Hill Murdoch. Vic Holbrook was a big star on the West Coast in the 50s. Uh, this has to be late 50s at, at best, at, at most recent, mid to late 50s. And we're going, we're going out West again. Maybe it's not Texas. Maybe it's New Mexico. Maybe it's Arizona. It, could it possibly be somewhere in California? But it would be mid-50s in the southwest or thereabouts. That's as close as I can get. How, how close am I? Pretty close. Monday evening, June 1st, 1953. The Northside Coliseum, Fort Worth, Texas. Fort Worth, Texas. And they went to the Northside Coliseum before they went to the Will Rogers Coliseum. There you go. All right. One last program here. Drum roll, please. Here are your preliminary matches. Bob DeMars versus Larry Hamilton. One fall, 20-minute time limit. Joe Dusick. Versus Dave Sims. One fall, 20-minute time limit. And then the main event, six-man tag team match. Ernie Dusick and Joe Dusick with Bob DeMars versus Dave Sims, Ray Vilmer, and Larry Hamilton. Ooh, um, Central States? Uh, well, I mean, before anyone use that term or called it central states topeka kansas okay i was going to say kansas or missouri um 19 mid 50s uh because when did when did larry hamilton get in the business because jody is his younger brother they main evented madison square garden when jody was 21 that was in 1959-ish, 58-ish, wasn't it? And Larry Hamilton had been around for a while before that. Been around for, I'm going to say, 
Oh, God. Uh, Ray Vilmer worked for Sam Muchnick in St. Louis in the late 40s, early 50s, 1952. Ooh, so close. Oh. Topeka, Kansas, May 19th, 1953. Bam! And that's Guess the Program, this week's edition. <laughs> and for anyone who sends in their own thing, we actually use the programs I have here in my collection in hand, so please... uh I don't want people to waste their time and send me, oh, here's 20 cards Jim should guess. That's not the way this is going to work. Yeah. Any closing thoughts on Guess the Program? Well, I mean, they, they, can, they can send like a photocopy of the program that you can read, but we don't want them to just make up cards and we don't know if they're legitimate or not. That's what you're saying. Well, that's part of the reason. But, of course, another thing you could do is you could take some of these notes and you could crumple <laughs> them up and you could maybe... See how they work as compost. They probably wouldn't work at all now that I think about it. But if you want to grow your lawn, we know someone who can help you. I thought you were going to say they could crumple them up (laughs) and stick them sideways on your lawn or whatever. Folks, we've been talking about this. It's We got jacked out of our spring. The weather was shitty, but now summertime is coming on. And what do you got? You got dandelions. You got weeds. You got bare spots on the lawn. You got all kinds of... The stuff you don't want to grow is growing, and the stuff you want to grow is not growing. But everybody wants a beautiful lawn, and they want it without harsh chemicals. Because you don't want to put chemicals on your lawn because of the pets and the kids. When the, when the pets go out and sit around or play ball, or the kids go out and piss on the grass or eat some of it, whatever the case may be, you want them on clean, healthy stuff. And the folks at Sunday give you a beautiful lawn without all those harsh chemicals. It's made with ingredients that you can feel good about, like seaweed. Everybody loves seaweed and molasses. Everybody loves molasses and iron. Of course, now when when you put iron on your yard and then you mow the grass, those little tiny sharp iron needles can be flung everywhere and penetrate people's spleens and livers and kidneys so you got to be careful when you put iron on the lawn but folks again you don't have to fucking go out there and haul around a bunch of uh uh big bags and and you don't have to push the wheelbarrow around all you do is you go to getsunday.com sunday just like the day getsunday.com and you put your address in and their lawn analysis tool uses all the soil and climate data and creates you a personal nutrient plan. And it's delivered right to your door when you need it. And then, boy, you just spread this stuff on a meatloaf or put it on your burgers or your sandwiches. It's personal nutrients that will make you feel good. Brian, you're not disagreeing with me. (laughs) Now make you feel good. You've just given up, haven't you? Wait, wait, we're talking about Sunday lawn. No, they won't make you feel good. They'll make your lawn feel good. Yeah, you don't eat this stuff. No, don't eat this stuff. See, that's what you weren't paying any attention. Because I've been eating this stuff. You've been eating this stuff. That's what's rotted your brain. No, what you do is that you get the fertilizer and stuff that they mix up for you. And it's delivered right to your door and you hook it up to the garden hose and just spray it about. And I know a lot of our listeners out there in the cult of Cornette are used to taking their hoses out and in public and just spraying everything. Well, now with their GetSunday.com 
lawn analysis tool, you'll be spraying the right things for your pets and your kids and your family on your lawn. And then when that grass is is as green as a pepper tree and you harvest it and you roll it up and set fire to it, it will have a pleasant taste and aroma and you will feel good about what you've done with your lawn. Folks, full season plans, full season. It's a short season, but still. Full season plans start at just $129 and you can get 20% off when you visit GetSunday.com slash JCE. Use that slash JCE at checkout to save 20% off your custom yard plan. GetSunday.com slash JCE. All the grass you're ever going to want to burn. GetSunday.com slash JCE. Jim, well, before we burn all the grass, let's get some more questions here on the show. This next one was sent to cornydrivethru at gmail.com from Jeff in Livermore, California. He found a list of the richest wrestlers of all time, and he wants to get your opinion on the list. Okay. It's a long list. We're not going to read this whole list. A long list. I didn't know there were that many rich wrestlers. Well, the number one richest wrestler of all time, Vince McMahon, worth $1.6 billion. Well, yeah, and, and I, I get he's a person who has wrestled. Would you identify Vince first and foremost as a wrestler? That's kind of a no. loophole there. And in that case, you know, then I could also be uh, categorized as a, uh, a, a media mogul and a wrestler as well, because I have actually wrestled, but, you know, I'm right now I'm doing this. Number two, The Rock, worth $400 million. That's probably a safe, um, a safe benchmark. I don't know any of the other boys going to hit $400 million anytime soon. Number three is Triple H, worth $150 million. I mean, you know... <laughs> Stop. Where where are we getting these uh, estimates from? Is this from Forbes magazine or some knowledgeable source, or is this just off Facebook? It appears to be from CelebrityNetWorth.com. Oh, well, I've looked mine up, and there's several million off. I ain't going to tell you in which direction, but I kind of was somewhat insulted. But that, no, I've, I don't believe any of these. Now, in without taking the figures into a, into the equation and just the ranking, I'm pretty sure Vince has more money than anybody else in the wrestling business. And I'm pretty sure the rock would be number two from that. You know, do we know what's going on with old Antonio Inoki these days? Cause I mean, was he, did he ever get up into the hundreds of millions? I don't know. I mean, Baba was the one people talked about more when it came to building wealth. That's Inoki. right. Baba may may have had Anoki. Anoki was like Barnett. He looked like he had a lot of money, but we, Baba actually had it, right? The real estate and purchasing things in Hawaii and all that shit. But I, I always heard that that he was at least in the, in the running for something like that. More money than anybody in the American wrestling business at that time had, and that was before Vince became a publicly traded billionaire. Number four, John Cena, worth $60 million. Well, I mean, you know, I can't argue with that because he's made major motion pictures and sitcoms, but 
again, where 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 would Anoki and Baba fall in that? And some of the uh, well, what other promoter can we think through history? Probably not. Not got there. Such an interesting list. I wonder what some of the wrestlers think about this list. Number five, Steve Austin worth $30 million, followed by Hulk Hogan worth $25 million. Well, Hogan's goes back and forth. Remember, he at one point, I, I had more money than Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan put together. And then the worm turned and he won the lawsuit, but he loses his money and divorce things and he gets money back in lawsuits and blah 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 so i'm i'm not surprised at that but again we don't know how legitimate these figures are well some interesting ones i'll pick out on here the bella twins are at number eight worth 20 million dollars oh now that's a fucking insult whether it's truth false or in the middle seriously what the fuck how the fuck did they make that much money out of the what their contribution to the wrestling business was? Well, right on their heels is Chris Jericho at number nine, worth $18 million. And again, I don't know about if I if I had $18 million, I wouldn't be on any tell. I don't I, I don't have $18 million and I'm still not on anybody's television by choice. If if Chris Jericho's worth $18 million, why is he fucking on TV right now? bumping that is but i would i would buy that more than the bellas because he's been in the business for years and years as a main event star but they got a tv show do you think they made that money that much money off of a bad reality show a bad reality show that ran on a network of bad reality shows for multiple seasons i'm sure they've made some nice Good money on god it. you know what people will fucking watch anything well, speaking of which, here's an interesting one. Number 15, Jeff Jarrett, worth $15 million. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> again, and I'm friends with Jeff, and I'm not saying that he doesn't have $15 million. And he has run a number of companies, and he's been in the business for a while. But if he has $15 million, then how much money does The Undertaker or Randy Orton have when they have been worked for the biggest promotion in the world at a high level in main event matches for 20 fucking years? Well, The Undertaker's actually at number 11 with $17 million, so he's done better oh, than well, Jeff Jarrett, just slightly right. better. Just slightly. You know, it's too bad. It's, <laughs> it's too bad. Jim, I, I don't see I, I, I don't see any of this. I'm sorry. I was going to say it's too bad you couldn't join the most exclusive club in wrestling, the $10 million club. Here's who makes $10 million or who has $10 million. Well, who's, who's to say I haven't? Because I told you my celebrity net worth was off. Well, maybe you could join this crew. Listen to this crew. Worth $10 million. Sable, Kevin Von Erich, Diamond Dallas Page, David Otunga, and Andre the Giant. What? Well, wait a minute. David Otunga? I don't know what he does. Does he have another job besides wrestling? Because Yes, he puts what? lists up of celebrity wealth on websites. <laughs> no, I don't know what he does. Um I mean Kevin Von Erich Fritz had money, and Kevin was the last child. Um, and he did sell the world class 
library to Vince for seven figures, and that's why they all moved out to Hawaii. But oh. I don't, I don't know about that one. And uh, David Otunga didn't make it in the wrestling business. I mean, he does he do something else as a as a livelihood and because we haven't seen him in ages, but they don't cut him because he's related to somebody, right? I don't think he was married. I think he was engaged to Jennifer Hudson for a while. But I don't think that's still a thing. Or then is he still there? I have no idea. Then how the fuck did he get $10 million? Maybe he's the smartest man in wrestling. <laughs> Maybe he beat Andre the Giant, who also had $10 million. Oh, and, you know, I... No. No, no. I'm not saying Andre didn't make $10 million over the course of his career, although we ought to do some math on that, because back Andre was in the Guinness Book of World Records in, what was it, 1974, 75, 76, in that area, as the highest paid pro wrestler at 450-something, or 400-something thousand dollars. I don't mean 400-something thousand dollars which would today be, what, two or three million. He was just above Bruno and just above the NWA champion. And I don't, I mean, he's been dead for, they're obviously talking about his estate. Would the value of his estate be that much when we've seen the recent documentaries and there's not tons of money pouring into it, although there is still interest in Andre. I'm not trying to be unkind. Yeah. I don't see I don't see how that would have worked since he's been gone for almost 30 years now. Yeah, I don't think there's millions pouring in, but it's, it is interesting because I guess it's Andre's daughter and whoever she has on her team. They license Andre the Giant all over the place. So I actually collect Andre the Giant action figures in the boxes, because that's so cool to me. You can get all these different brands of Andre the Giant toys. The official WWE. There's a Mego one that's just the most ghastly figure you've ever seen. <laughs> Super 7 does different versions of it. There's Japanese action figures. There's so many cool Andre the Giant items, and a lot of it's because outside of WWE, he's being licensed actively. I don't know how many wrestlers there are. I mean, Randy Savage, I guess. How many wrestlers have passed and actually have estates that are still monetizing the wrestler in any acceptable way of the way a celebrity who passed would be? Not many. Not that I can think of. Well, we'll close out this list, Jim, with a $7 million club. <laughs> Jeff Hardy, Dean Ambrose. Okay, maybe that's when this list was made. Randy Orton. Wade Barrett. Jerry Lawler and Bret Hart. I again, you know, I I can't argue with names like Lawler and Bret Hart, except say maybe would it be a little bit more um, with some of those others? I don't know how they arrived there, but I think the the reporting on this is specious at best because there's no way to tell how the in, unless somebody is in a high profile lawsuit where that information has to become public record, there's no way of telling what anybody's legitimate net worth is. What wrestler had the most opulent lifestyle, you know, pre uh, the modern television era or pre, you know, the, the eighties before the eighties, what wrestler 
Because the thing is, when you're talking about the way the email was worded was the richest wrestlers of all time, not the richest wrestlers of this era. So yeah. again, when you're adjusting for inflation, how many wrestlers in the 20s, 30s, how many wrestlers throughout time really lived it up and made a lot of money and actually saved some money and we don't even realize it? Well, the stories always were that Strangler Lewis, who was married five or six times and went through, Thez said he went through two or three different fortunes during his career. He probably earned, and this is in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, several million dollars wrestling and ended up pretty broke at the end. I mean... Flair certainly lived a high lifestyle. The stories are from from Vince McMahon himself that that's why he idolized Dr. Jerry Graham because Jerry Graham, when he was on top in the late 50s in New York and the Graham brothers were selling out Madison Square Garden, he had the bright pink convertible Cadillac that he would drive through Times Square lighting cigars with $100 bills. And that's $100 in 1959. And th those were the stories, and he did it because there it was. And then he died broken, penniless, you know, in a fucking cheap room somewhere after his mother, who he had supported all throughout his wrestling career, sending money home that he wasn't burning light and cigars. She ended up giving all the money to the fucking church. And to Billy Graham, was, to the Reverend Billy Graham. To the Reverend Billy Graham. And he, the Jerry Graham was left high and dry. And there you go. So, but I mean, Barnett lived opulently in a lot of cases off of other people's money. But I was going to say, but there's arguments to this day whether he actually had any money at all. Yeah. But it, you know, appearances were deceiving. And a lot of to Ole Anderson had fuck you money in the early 80s. And that's why it was uh, an increasingly bigger task to get him to come back for Crockett and then for TBS. And then, you know, finally he's like, fuck this wrestling shit. But it wanted, he had a lumber mill in Minnesota that he owned. And, uh, you know, he was always, because he was one of the smarter guys in the business, intelligence-wise. He always took care of his shit. Well, Jim, let's get another list here. This one was sent to Corny Drive-Thru at gmail.com from Sebastian Lamar, Quebec City. My email may not be in the I was going to say that couldn't be his real name, but if he's from Quebec, I guess it could. And it says, my email may not be in the best English. I am a French-Canadian. Excuse me. I am as French-Canadian <laughs> as the Rougeau family. I came up with a list of the five most culturally impactful wrestlers of all time, and I would like to hear what you think of it. It's not in order of the most important first, but in chronological order. So once again, the most culturally impactful wrestlers. Number one, Luthez. He was the most important world champion of the territory days before wrestling was on TV. Two, Ric Flair. He was the main champion that brought territory wrestling to television. Three, Hulk Hogan. He was the wrestler that made WWF a nationwide monopoly. Four, Bret Hart. He was the wrestler that ended the big man era and allowed smaller and more technical wrestlers to become world champions. And finally, five, Steve Austin, the first anti-hero character that blurred the line between face and heel. 
Tim, what are your thoughts on Sebastian's list of the most culturally impactful wrestlers? Uh, I don't agree with at least three of them. Um, you can make a cultural impact is different than an impact on the wrestling business, right? Cultural impact means you have an impact on the culture, on the general mainstream society that you are in. So if that's the case, then automatically the biggest cultural impact that any pro wrestler has ever had would be either between Ricky Dozan or El Santo. Bingo. I agree. Um, so everybody else, no matter who it is, is going for second place there. Uh, Ricky Dozan still to this day places in polls in Japan of sports figures, not just wrestlers. Um, he started an entire industry. He was a national hero. El Santo did the same thing in Mexico, pretty much. He was the guy. He was he surpassed the the wrestling business. And the mask and the trademark and the idea of him and the, you know, his birth date is a holiday and all that other shit. Nobody in the United States or really anywhere else in the world, except maybe Kentaro Oki in Korea, right, has had the impact on their relative cultures and societies that Ricky Dozan and, and Santo did. So you start there with those two. Luthez had absolutely, and I have all the respect in the world for Luthez, zero impact on American cultural society. Plenty of impact on the wrestling business. But Hulk Hogan and Steve Austin qualify for having an impact on American culture. People who weren't wrestling fans didn't have any idea, have never seen a wrestling match either knew who Hulk Hogan was because of the television exposure, saw him, were cognizant of him on The Tonight Show, the movies, cheaply made and unentertaining as though they were. <laughs> Come on. And the same thing with Steve Austin, the T-shirts, and Hell Yeah, and Austin 316, and the middle finger, and the don't the rattlesnake. The, it went into movies. It went into the mall. It passed the wrestling bubble. As far as, so if you've got Ricky Dozan and El Santo and you've got Hogan and Austin, if Flair now has more cultural impact on today's culture than he had on the overall culture when he was on top in the 70s and 80s because he was the man to the wrestling fans. But that was a period of time where wrestling and specifically the Carolinas or even the NWA, they didn't have, you know, what's the Q rating? They didn't have the complete recognition of everybody in the country, just the wrestling fans. But Flair now, because those people that were wrestling fans grew up to be rappers and movie stars and celebrities and basketball players and whatever the fuck, he's got more impact now on the culture than he did when he was in his prime, in terms of people being cognizant and aware of who he is and the Ric Flair drip and all that stuff. that I just wish I could have been on Crockett's plane with Arn Anderson and Nikita Koloff and a few people in, when the Ric Flair drip became a thing. The fucking one-liners would have been... But, uh, but who do you think has more cultural 
impact today, Ric Flair or The Rock? Um, well, still it's The Rock because The Rock is everybody. Every kid knows he's on network television every week. He, it, the wrestling fans from 25 years ago or the movie fans from five years ago, the TV people that watch TV today, he's he's transcended wrestling because he's done so many other high-profile things. So, uh, honestly, yeah, The Rock right now has more cultural impact. As a wrestler, I think Austin had more impact on on America than The Rock did. But The Rock obviously blows everybody away now in terms of everybody knows who the fuck he is. When it comes to the territories, how do you look at a JYD in New Orleans? You look at that and you say, magnificent cultural impact or too short to classify with somebody? Well, no, but, but now when we start breaking down the location, well, he had a massive cultural impact in New Orleans specifically, state of Louisiana kind of, the southwest region pretty much. He wasn't any bigger right. in New Orleans, though, than Lawler was in Memphis or that Dusty was at one time in Florida. What about Bruno in or, the Northeast, if you want to talk cultural Bru impact? Well, I was about to say, if you if you go to a regional cultural impact, Bruno would have had more than any wrestler because that was the biggest region. The north of Boston, Philadelphia, New York City, Pittsburgh, the biggest cities, you know, in the smallest geographic area you're hitting a lot of people so bruno's cultural impact would have been more than dogs because new orleans and louisiana was a smaller area and bruno had such longevity and so many people important people movers and shakers grew up in new york or in that area and grew up with either bruno or grew up with their parents idolizing bruno mars his parents nicknamed him after bruno so if you're talking a cultural impact on an entire culture a few of those people broke through um if you're talking about and because of the modern era it was easier if you're talking about regional cultural impact almost nobody's would have been stronger than bruno but then the culture the cultural impact of the entire country under strangler lewis everybody in the united states of america knew strangler lewis's name and what he did even if they didn't watch wrestling or go to wrestling matches what about whipper watson or yvonne robert in canada yeah absolutely whipper watson and, and yvonne robert and you know, maybe even the the Rougeaus, the original Rougeaus in Montreal, because of the the French Canadians love their heroes and they become bigger and last longer just because the, the French Canadians cling to them. And so in Canada, and especially in the eastern part of Canada, Whipper Watson was the, the biggest star they had, Yvonne Robert before him. The Rougeaus were huge in Montreal. Let's not forget Andre. Massive cultural impact eventually on the whole culture because even though there was no national television for wrestling at the time, because of the nature of him being a traveling attraction, he appeared live everywhere. He appeared at one point or another on tape on every territory's wrestling program. So he made covers of magazines. He's a guy that had 
an impact just in terms of recognition. <clears throat> he didn't necessarily change anything about wrestling, like you know Hogan and Austin did, but but culturally knew who he was. But yeah. culturally, his stuff's still being licensed today. People still know yeah. his image today, maybe and more the, so the, than his, even then. It well, yeah, because there's been more documentaries in the book written, and more people have heard about him now that maybe not weren't around when he was you know on the road so yeah it's not like a, a, when a guy gets to that point that level of fame and has that many people that remember him and was also such a classic story whether it be bruno surviving the nazis in the mountains and his mother being shot trying to steal food for him or andre you know coming from a small village and a normal sized family but the the whole story that he has, that gets bigger. It's like, you know, nobody remembers that John Paul Henning was one of the biggest box office babyface attractions in wrestling in the 50s. Nobody. But a guy like, because he was just a wrestler, and he was a good one, but he had nothing, there was no concerted effort to keep his name out in front of the public. With Andre or Bruno or guys that get to that level, they still keep telling stories. They still keep writing books. They still keep doing documentaries. And more people that weren't even alive then start knowing who the fuck they were. So that has a continuing impact. Jim, our next question sent to CourtneyDriveThrough at gmail.com from Tim Litvin in Periopolis, Pennsylvania. Oh, now, are you just blathering here or are those real words that's what those are his words periopolis pennsylvania please tell us in your own words all right i'll just make them up as i go dear mr cornett i live 10 minutes from the rostraver ice gardens rostraver pennsylvania in the that infamous was, oh i'm sorry go ahead yes that was the place that not only did they have it remember when they did the uh brian hildebrand uh curtis comes home show where the, it's outside of Pittsburgh. They did that show in, where everybody donated their time and appearance and everything. But that was also the location of my last Ring of Honor television taping when fucking idiot Greg the Office Boy had pissed off the Dan Bynum, the producer, so bad, would not want to fucking talk to him like an adult about the budget, so they had no pipe and drape. And there was an endless supply of fucking Coke machines and odd lit things that we had to shoot and the concrete bleachers and it was 40 degrees inside because they had an ice floor they didn't want to melt and we had 300 people there because it was too soon to come back after we'd had bruno as a guest but greg the office boy wanted to save 10 grand and then carino ends up laying there fucking can't breathe and the ambulance is coming and the whole office is left and I'm screaming at everybody that I'm going to murder that fucking piece of shit, Greg Gilliland, and anybody that gets in my way. And then I went to the Eaton Park and had three dinners simultaneously, went to Baltimore, did the post-production on those TVs, came home, and never darkened their doorstep again. That's where Ross Draver, Pennsylvania is. All right, well, here's Tim's uh, email. I live 10 minutes from Rostraver, from the Rostrader Ice Gardens in infamous Bell Vernon, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Where you finally had enough with Ring of Honor. I was wondering if that was the coldest building you were ever in while in the wrestling business. And if not, 
I would love to hear which one was. No, that was. Um, I mean, I've been at a few outdoor shows <laughs> that that approached that temperature, but no, it was a cold and drizzly and rainy day in the mid forties. In it was, I think, November the second in Pennsylvania. And they had the doors open to this place all day because they were hauling the ring and all the equipment in and everything. And so I got there, it was my custom, 11 in the morning. And I'm wearing my coat. And you know I'm a free perspirer. And I was still wearing my outdoor coat that I'd never taken off at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I now I see the back door closed, right? They've got the ring in and they've got the lighting grid, whatever. and I. I go up front and I asked old gutless Gary Jester, I said, Gary, when are they going to turn the heat on? And he looked at us and said, they can't. So what do you mean they can't? Well, it's an ice rink. It's an, and this wasn't an ice rink where a sports team plays. This was an ice rink where take your kids to fucking ice skate for their birthday party ice rink. I said, what do you mean they can't? Well, they'll melt the ice. I said, we've been on ice floors before and that's what you do. Well, that's the big... That's the Knoxville Civic Coliseum ice floor that has the professional hockey team playing there. But no, they can't turn the heat on. It'll melt the floor. So basically, the ring was sitting on particle board that was covering up a, an ice floor. So the not only was the building had no heat in it, and it was 40-something degrees outside, it was the same temperature inside. But if we did anything to try to warm up the ringside area, then the ice melting would soak the particle board and all the people would be sitting ankle deep in fucking water. So at the main event was Davy Richards, and I think it might have been Michael Elgin, I can't remember, but by the time they finished working, indoors now, under the TV lights, they both had steam coming off of them like the bald-headed football players do in Green Bay when they take their helmet off in the wintertime. I've never seen anything. The fans couldn't take their mittens off. So instead of clapping, it was like... And they were just doing that to keep warm. It was fucking abysmal. And, and I believe I'd mentioned to you, Brian, that I had told them two months beforehand, you know, we ain't going to draw and the building's going to look like shit on TV. And that's when Gary Jester, trying to fucking suck up to Greg, and said, oh, but we've got two months to make it look good, and we know if we don't, you'll never let us forget it. So the last words that I spoke to Gary Jester was, I told you what it was going to be, and you told me that you had two months and if you didn't do it right, I'd never let you forget it. Well, guess what, motherfucker? I'm never going to let you forget it. And Gary, if you're listening to this now, since we haven't spoken in 10 fucking years, because you're a gutless piece of shit, I'm never going to let you forget it. It looked like shit. For all the reasons I indicated. I'm sure he's not listening. He's probably at Starbucks, but maybe somebody can... <laughs> Can let him know what I said. Uh, maybe he'll get a report. Uh, another question here, Jim, sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Oliver in Ireland. Hi, Jim and Brian. Why do you guys hate Hogan? Just wondering. <laughs> I mean, I know he exaggerates stories, but he was a massive star in the business. He crossed over to the mainstream, 
and loves the business. Why do you guys never give him the credit he deserves? We don't hate Hulk Hogan. If he was in the street in front of me and I was driving, I would hit my brakes. I wouldn't just run him down. And we think precisely because, I don't know, I don't mean to speak for you, Brian, but tell me what you think. We, precisely because he was st such a big star, there's no reason to lie about that shit. And if you're going to lie, make them entertaining stories that people could actually buy into and kind of be, you know, entertained by instead of just blatantly lying and making shit up that's only funny because it's obviously not true on the surface of it. Did I say that correctly, Brian? Yeah, and I think if Oliver's a regular listener, I mean, we just did a segment about wrestlers with cultural impact. We don't deny what Hulk Hogan meant to the business, what he meant to the WWS national expansion, his star magnitude in the history of wrestling. But there's also the guy who says all sorts of... He's just an insufferable bullshit artist. He's a complete bullshit artist. And possibly a racist, but definitely a complete bullshit artist. So... So that's it. I mean, it, it, you, tell the, you can tell the truth when you've got to his level. You can tell the truth and there's still... Good stories. You don't have to make shit up. No, he was never going to be in Metallica. <laughs> and no, he, was, he wasn't going to be the fucking George Foreman grill. And no, he wasn't going to be the goddamn guy that worked twice every day for 400 days in a row because he was flying backwards in time from Japan and whatever the fuck else. Someone has to make a biopic of just his lies. And Muhammad Ali's daughter saved him from committing suicide. Which was news to her. Which was news to her when people <laughs> thanked her for it. So I did. Okay. I don't remember. I can't wait till he gets them all confused. Oh, you know, I was going to do the George Foreman grill, but I blew up my back body slamming Andre the Giant before the Silver Dome fell down on top of me. But thank God George Foreman called me and kept me from killing myself. And then I fucking burnt myself on the Layla Ali grill. Well, you know, Jim, perhaps one of these people that Hulk Hogan talks about, that he makes up stories about, usually they're made up about himself, to be quite honest with you. It's just he involves other people in these stories, whether they know it or not. Maybe he's going to say something about the wrong person, put them in a place they weren't, in a situation they were never in, talking to him, which they probably wouldn't do, and maybe they'll want to sue. And maybe they will want to sue because maybe they will not want to be known as the person that kept Hulk Hogan from killing himself. Oh, don't and say so, that. Don't say that. Well, maybe they don't want to be known that way. Maybe they weren't even there. And it was Owen. But regardless, <laughs> it wasn't even there. It was Owen that saved me. But regardless, if you want to sue somebody for doing something somewhere, at some time, to you or somebody else, well, we know the right person to call. Call Stephen P. Show or two. Still to the rest. 
Brian, you tried here recently on the program to make people think that Stephen P. New was out and about running around doing debauchery things and I did and not conducting himself. No, I, I, I did not. You did. I that. mentioned that Stephen P. New is one of the foremost philanderers in West Virginia. Yes, he is he always giving money to charitable causes. He's very philanderopic. Or is it a philatelist? He's what is what is oh philanthropist. 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 Yes. He's whether full whether of he's philanthropy. He's full of philandering. <laughs> or philanthroping. Or whether he's philandering or philanthroping, he's always doing good for people. He supports young people and their activities in sports and the arts. He's supports feeding hungry people. The Feeding America program, he's he's big. It got me into that. I, I send money every month. He also supports the fine arts over there in West Virginia. And boy, they're hard to find in West Virginia, those fine arts. And, and some people still have to be taught in West Virginia how to blow on one of those moonshine jugs to get a tune out of it. But he supports that. And also, he goes to court for the needy and the people who need compensation and justice, and he brings that to them forthwith and post-haste through newlawoffice.com, 888-692-8084. That's the number to call. That's the place to go if you need help with any legal entanglement that you find yourself in, or if you have been wronged and need to get justice, he's the man to lead you there, newlawoffice.com. 888-692-8084, the legendary, the infamous, philandering philanthropist, Stephen P. New. He's a philanthropist, that's right, not a philanderer, but let's get going with some other questions Or a here. philatelist. He's, he, he practices philately. Look that one up, kids. All right, well, before you slander Stephen P. New's name any further, let's get a question or two before we wrap things up, Jim. This next one... Sent to Corny Drive Through at gmail.com from not Charlie from Starkville, but John from Louisville is how it's signed off here. Recently, Megacon announced the rules of the upcoming autograph session. Wait a minute, who's Megacon? Is that the that the biggest con? Well, is that uh, a we, comic con? Well, we know who the biggest con is, but recently Megacon. Who is Megacon? That's the convention, I believe. Recently, oh, I thought it was a, a guy named Mega Con. Recently, Mega Con, okay. Mega Con announced the rules of the upcoming autograph session. There's Tony Con. There's Nick Con. There's Nanachka Con. Shaka Con. Shaka Con. Killer Con. Killer Con. Mega Con. Well, here's Mega Con. Well, this is not Mega Con's question. It's. <laughs> Recently, Megacon announced the rules of the upcoming autograph session that The Undertaker will be participating in. Okay. He sent a link here. He wants to know, what are your thoughts on the price? What's the deal with 1991? I'll explain that in a second. Why charge more for a belt to be signed over something else? And an extra 99 bucks from the signed Hall of Fame 22 is the phenom smoking crack Wait, now that he's what? retired. now? Hold on, they charge an extra extra $100 for him to sign WWE Hall of Fame 22? Here is the image I have from Megacon Orlando, Undertaker photo ops and autographs, $229 per autograph. Ow! 
Ouch! On any item except for belts. $249 per autograph on a belt. $99 for a separate HOF 22 inscription. Hall of Fame 22, Wait, course. not even WWE Hall of Fame tw- 2022, but just HOF 22. Here's where it gets interesting. Undertaker will not sign any trading cards from 1991. Undertaker will not sign any WWE or WWF event tickets. No personalizations or other inscriptions offered. For $229? He's appearing Saturday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. All right. Well, How much do you think he's getting paid that they're charging that much? That's the well, big question. That, herein, it's not the Undertaker's not actively being an asshole he's just not he doesn't care enough to stop other people from being assholes apparently they're paying him a set fee that's the way this works in a in the the case of a guy with a name like the undertaker the promoter of this event whoever it may be is paying him x thousand dollars however many thousands of dollars that may be to be there for four hours and they've got to make their money back by charging a ridiculous amount of money for the autographs. I understand that. Having said that, if I was in that position, I've been in that position for a lot less money than the Undertaker's making. The first thing I usually do is ask everybody, how do you want to make it out? What's your name? Ben, Joe, Karen, whatever the fuck. Because then it becomes, if they're paying that much money, then you got to give them something that that they really came for, that they're going to appreciate, cherish, whatever the case, and just the Undertaker and an extra $100 to write three letters and two numbers, then that's where I would think Undertaker would step in and go, look, I know we can't write the Gettysburg Address on everything, but fuck you if the guy's name is Joe... I'll sign it for 200 and something dollars or the money you're paying me, I'll sign it to Joe. I, I The belt, they, they, Gene Simmons did that at a comic convention in Louisville that we went to several years back. He was the guest on Sunday. And they'd had a lot of big names, a lot of Star Trek original cast and the office people were there and Stan Lee had been there and blah, blah, blah. So they announce on Sunday afternoon, Gene Simmons has landed at Louisville International Airport. And everybody kind of went murmur, murmur, murmur. And when they brought him to the building, they erected sheets of, of walls of, of cloth drapes, pipe and drape to where you couldn't even walk by the booth that he was at and see him for free. He was in the goddamn tent. And when you bought the thing, you walked through and got his autograph because he he's a big star and apparently he believes he's about twice as big a star as he is. And he would sign for a hundred and whatever dollars or two hundred dollars, he'd sign an autograph. But if you wanted him to sign a guitar, that was five hundred dollars. And the reason for that, I was told, is because people then go and resell a Gene Simmons fucking signed guitar for a lot of money. Well, you know what? Fuck you, Gene Simmons. You're getting paid the same thing to sign your name, whether it's on a goddamn guitar or an 8x10 or somebody's ass. 
And if they can make a little extra money out of it later on, it's not you. You ain't going to get any money off that thing anyway. They're going to sell it. So what? How much money do people fucking need? And, and to be quite honest, I had to kind of hold my nose and start charging for photo ops when that became a thing here at these conventions because. When I got into business, it was like if somebody wants to, well, if you're a baby face, somebody wants to take your picture, or your autograph, you give it to them or the promoter will yell at you because you're a baby face. But to have somebody take a picture of me with their fucking camera or phone and me to charge them 20 or $30 and not even pay to get it developed for them, that was, so I used to say, no, buy something and I'll take your picture. And then people started handing me fucking money for no reason. Just here, here, take this. And I was like, well, who's the idiot? I'm trying to be nice. And they're giving me money I'm not asking for. So I finally reconciled it with, I won't charge you for a photo op, but you buy my autographed picture and you get a photo op too. And then we're both happy. But it, but that's just, how much money do people have, especially these days? That's a little much. If you can't make your money back on The Undertaker without charging little fucking Tits McGee $250 to sign his replica belt, then maybe just don't bring The Undertaker in. I don't know. Knowing they have him for four hours and he won't personalize anything or inscribe anything other than what they've offered... Could any of that be just a time issue? We have them for four hours. We're going to have a big line. We have to have them sign things for well, us. Well, yeah, it is a time issue. That's why if, and it, here's another thing to me, if you're going to fucking take the booking, stay till everybody gets their fucking autograph. I have a lot of times pay. Okay. You're, you're done. What? There's still people standing here. We, well, the hours of the thing are over with. Well, but these people have been waiting. So what's up with The Undertaker will not sign any trading cards from 1991? That I can't, I have no earthly idea. That's a weird I have, one. I, well, you know more about the modern collectible business than I do. Was, was his picture bad in 1991 on his trading card? Or was, his, was it like a Seinfeld thing and his nipple was showing? Or what, is there something I, the matter with it? I can't even... Imagine what it would be. I have no idea, unless it's a WWE thing. Because if he's signing as The Undertaker, that means WWE's involved, correct? Well, one would think. But it's an official one of their... I don't understand the tickets either. I've signed a lot of event tickets for fans. They'd say, oh, here, this ticket was from Starcade when you were there in that match. Or whatever. Well, here you go. What? How is a an autographed event ticket... What's the drawback to that? What is the the downside to signing that? I don't understand. But I don't understand a lot of things, especially how, why somebody, I wouldn't pay $250 for any living human being's autograph unless it was on a fucking check. All right, Jim. Well, before we wrap things up, a few rapid fire Gordon Soley trivia questions, if you don't mind. All right. Rapidly, rapidly. Which wrestler dubbed the professor watched in horror as a statue of him he had commissioned was smashed by an opponent? Jesus Christ. Um, that's a, uh, 
That's hard to pin down. I Professor did. Roy Shire, Professor Dale Lewis. Professor, Professor Boris, Boris Malenko. Malenko. There Malenko. Okay, there we go. Jim, true or false? According to the NWA rules, tag team mates must tag each other with only their hands. Yeah, think. We've been talking about that one. That's right. True or false, according to the NWA official rules, a tag team wrestler may tag out with his foot. False. Correct. False. You know a lot about tag team wrestling, sir. I just, I'll read a lot. Normally, how many warnings will a referee give an opponent before he is disqualified? Ah, uh, two. That is correct. Wow. Good job there. That, that, was a, that was a Florida rule. True or false, the maximum distance which a wrestler may be from his corner while tagging is often measured by a string located on the turnbuckles. Correct. The tag rope. That is true. True or false. See, this is bullshit. True or false, the killer bees are masked. <laughs> well, they were for an angle. That's right. They did. Sometimes they were masked, so you can't really say no. Jim is a lights out match wrestled in the dark. No. That is correct. No. A lights out match. And again, an Eddie Graham invention that nobody understands how it started and doesn't don't do it properly anymore. But the light and somebody asked me. Um, on uh, sent me an email when I was searching through emails trying to come up with some things to talk about. Somebody asked me, they sent me an email, said, well, how is it that they, they said that they're not responsible, the, the lights out match is not sanctioned so that if there's an injury, nobody will be responsible. And I in in fucking, for once, in storyline, like the kids say, because the guy said it doesn't seem like there was much responsibility on the part of the old-time territory promoters on the wrestlers' health and well-being. If they got injured, they were on their own or whatever. It's in storyline. Championship wrestling from Florida is not going to sanction this match as a regular part of our standard professional wrestling event consisting of athletic contests because this thing... These guys hate each other. There's no rules to this. It's going to get out of hand. Somebody could be injured. We will provide them with the ring to settle their issue, but we will not sanction the match, and we absolve ourselves of any responsibility if somebody gets hurt. That's so people will buy tickets to see somebody get hurt. That's the way that, and the lights-out match, the rest of the card, including the advertised main event, took place, and then. The ring lights were dimmed to show symbolically that that was the end of the scheduled program, and then the ring lights came back up, and the non-sanctioned match came to the ring, and in some cases, the promoter would go so far as to not have the regular ring announcer announce it, and not even any, any of the standard staff at ringside that worked for the promotion. This is just, we're giving these guys this space to beat the shit out of each other. Have at it. Name the gargantuan twin brother tag team who went from carnival sideshows. Yeah, from carnival sideshows to the squared circle. Well, Billy and Benny McGuire, but their real names were McCreary. So they used both. 
How many chances do you have to win a two-ring triple chance over the top rope battle royal? <laughs> well, and who was buried in Grant's tomb? And some smartass said, uh, actually, the answer is nobody because nobody is buried in a tomb. They're entombed in it. But having said that, what was the question? <laughs> having said that, let me grab the card. How many chances do you have to win a two-ring triple chance over the top rope battle royal? You got three. That is correct. Jim, true. And, and, and to, to explain to the people, everybody starts in the first ring. And to be eliminated, you have to be thrown over the top rope into the second ring where a match starts all over again. And then you have to be thrown over the top rope to the floor to be eliminated from that. So that's a second chance. And then the last guy in each ring get in the same ring and have a single match until one of them wins. And that's your third chance. Jim. Woman wrestler Debbie Combs is a second-generation wrestler. Name her wrestler mother. Cora. True or false, Mike LeBron and Phil Lido in the 50s formed the original tag team of the Beotians. I have never heard any of those names, so I would say that would be false. That is false. So let me put these ones over here. <laughs> Fill in the blank. Blank lumberjack match. That's actually really, what? That's hard to figure out. A blank lumberjack. It's a Canadian lumberjack match, but you wouldn't. Oh, okay. Well, and again, this is Florida-centric because, obviously, Gordon Soley was known primarily as the announcer of the Florida Territory for so many years, even though he did Atlanta. And Joe LaDuke was huge in Florida and instituted the Canadian lumberjack match. So that's why that's regionally significant. Who was the first publisher to devote an entire magazine to wrestling? No. Um, See, this, I don't know if this is correct. That's, well, I was about to say, what is Gordon Soley's game going to say versus there were wrestling magazine, wrestling only magazines in the thirties. What is he, what does he say? And this is not correct, but Stanley West and London publishing. No, that's far from. Which wrestling legend credited with inventing the flying dropkick died on March 15th, 1977 in New York City. Well, wait a minute. He's talking about Rocca, right? Correct. But he didn't... Well, he may have popularized, but didn't invent the flying dropkick. But he's talking about Argentina Rocca. I think that's how I would put it, too. He popularized it in North America, but we don't know that he invented it. That's a hard thing to claim. Jim, see, this is a trick one. I mean... If you played this game with someone who didn't know anything about wrestling and they just went on the answers here, you'd flip out. <laughs> Frank Gotch, true or false, Frank Gotch held the NWA World Heavyweight title twice, retiring undefeated in 1913. Well, again, the NWA traces its lineage back to Frank Gotch with a fair amount of creative history rewriting. Uh, but it wasn't called that title. Frank Gotch was the world champion. He did hold the title twice because he did a business match with Fred Beal in 1906 and dropped it so he could win it back and then did retire undefeated in 1913. But that's somewhat, as you mentioned, misleading. True or false, Teddy Roosevelt was once a wrestler himself. Well, there has been the story that Teddy, amongst the other manly activities that he liked, besides moose hunting and charging up San Juan Hill, liked to scuffle with the uh, 
the soldiers and things and the people at the White House, but he was he was never a paid professional, was he? I don't believe so. I don't think so. True or false, George Washington, the first American president, <laughs> was once a wrestler himself. I refer to my comments on Teddy Roosevelt. I think, you know, after they crossed the Delaware, they wanted to go a few falls on the other side just for sport and exercise, but the, it was not a coordinated career for Mr. Washington. Which wrestler was married to the famous female athlete Babe Diedrichson? George Zaharias. That's right. Do you think fans today know who she is? I mean, forget about fans of wrestling, but fans of just sports. I, well, they every once in a while they do retrospectives on, you know, especially in women's. Do they have a Women's Heritage Month or just Women's Month or Feminism Month or anything? Babe Diedrichson Zaharias was, I would think, the most publicized and most well-known female athlete in the United States of America from what the 30s through the 50s or that yeah. range. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not as good on golf and all the various other sports that she conquered as uh as I am on wrestling, but there was nobody more in the news as far as female professional athletes than Babe Diedrichson. All right, a few more here. Whom did Harley Race defeat to win the NWA World Heavyweight title for the fifth time? For the fifth time. For the fifth time. Shit. Um I said he tried to think about it without looking. I was like, you know, it is kind of tough to figure that out. Was that one of the Japanese switches or was that? <sighs> uh, you know what? Just to keep this moving, it was indeed Giant Baba. One yeah, of the I was, was going to say it was either it was either one of the last ones with Flair or, or Baba and it was Baba. And of course, Harley paid for that, right? He bought it outright from, or Baba bought it from him, not the NWA. Well, yeah, I was about Harley didn't pay for it. Baba paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> Charles W. Lay, retired former NWA light heavyweight champion, lives in Charlie Lay. Lives in what southern city? Jackson, Mississippi. There you go. Jackson, Mississippi. Very good. True or false? In 828 AD, Emperor Buntaku of Japan decreed that his sons would wrestle to determine who would become the heir to his throne. That was false. It was Emperor Bukaki. <laughs> it, it, that is false. It, it, this is true. It's not Emperor Bukaki. <laughs> I swear it was. They had a big fight over who got the... Never mind. Anyway. Here's one of my favorite quotes from a wrestler in a promo that's now in this question. Who was the first wrestler to reverse the figure four leg lock on Jack Briscoe? On Jack Briscoe? It says on Jack Briscoe, but... The wrestler I'm thinking of, the reason I laugh was every promo he ever mentioned is he claimed that he just did it. I was the first wrestler to get out of the figure four leg lock. And then later on, he just started messing up like, I was the first wrestler to figure four arm lock. Like he just. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first person theoretically to reverse the figure four leg grapevine, according to the famous angle, was Buddy Rogers got reversed by Cowboy Bob Ellis, right? I believe so. But this is so that, this but, does mention Jack Briscoe, though. For but that mentions Jack Briscoe, and I'm trying to think who they would have done. It wasn't Dory Funk Jr. Don Morocco. Don Morocco. That's right. When he, 1974 in Florida when he was a babyface, right? That's right. Or was it? I think so. And, and, and Briscoe, he had a title match with Briscoe. 
because they wouldn't have let they wouldn't have let a just a schlub heel reverse Briscoe. So I th- yeah, it was Morocco for an angle. All right, three more questions here. True or false? Phil the Mortician Lido and Mike the Mystic C. LeBron won the main event of Grapplefest One in Munich, Germany. Excuse me, Munich, West Germany, in 1953. That is complete blather. That is false. Let me go now to this one. In April of 1969, see how would anyone get this? Who were billed as the world's biggest tag team? Uh, wait a minute. Haystacks Calhoun and Man Mountain Mike? You got it. Wow. How'd you you get it? Because they were the world's biggest tag team. (laughs) Was it on the front cover of one of the uh, London publishing magazines? No, there was a story. But I remember that because Man Mountain Mike was like the West Coast version of Haystacks Calhoun when Haystacks' career was winding down, right? He'd been big out in California, so no pun intended. So they found Man Mountain Mike, who was even bigger. But as Mike was starting, and that was 1969, Calhoun was done by 77. Um, so they kind of, Mike came up to take some of those spots, but they got the bright idea to book them as a tag team so that they could be the world's largest tag team, but you couldn't do anything with either one. So it, you know, it was just an attraction thing. It wasn't regular. Jim, true or false, wrestler Hector Guerrero is the brother of L.A. Dodger star Pedro Guerrero. It would be true, except it's false. That is false. And our last question here today, where does a scaffold match take place? (laughs) Somewhere that Jim Cornette is not. (laughs) That is correct. The answer, atop a scaffold. (laughs) And with that, we have wrapped up the show. All right, some fun, some laughter, and some dryness. You got it all today this week. Let's get a few songs before we wrap things up. Jim, this first one was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Kevin Wersh, Sacramento, California. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Kevin. I don't know whether it's their mix, your mix, my mix, or somebody's mixed up, but I can't understand a god. All I'm hearing is, whoa. It's a parody of the Ramones' Beat on the Brat. This is called Beat on the Bee. 
And if I didn't know that, I would have no idea what he was saying at all. If you want to we send it in with a different the mix, sentiment. that's right. But oh boy. Jim, let's get another one here. This one was sent to cornydrivethrough at gmail.com from Andrew in Dublin, Ireland. He says this track is dedicated to Sammy Guevara and that stupid fucking pointless multi-flip botch of a ladder. <laughs> Kansas, but from Dublin, Ireland, and Andrew, what are your thoughts on that one, Jim? And he was doing his own guitar picking there, and also the overdub, the multi-track recording, the, the harmony. Very, very good job. And we could understand the words. All right, Jim. Well, that was Dust in the Wind, and uh, so are we. With that, the drive-thru <laughs> is closed. That's the best thing I've heard all day. How's that for a transition? There you go. I have so many different instruments here. Hold on one last time before we go. Keep the bears away. Of course, I you don't could... know. If I were you, I'd stop fondling your instrument. Well, you could fondle more. Well, don't fondle under anything, actually. What another bad transition. We'll be back this weekend on the Jim Cornette Experience, wherever you find your favorite podcast. And next week, right back here in the drive-thru, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Follow Jim on Twitter at TheJimCornette. Follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. Hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Don't forget, patreon.com slash cornet. Access the archive 
of the drive through and experience going back to 2013, patreon.com slash Cornette. Subscribe to the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Jim Cornette. It'll come right up. Clips of episodes, full episodes, omnibus collections, all with the very popular Travis Heckle artwork, the official Jim Cornette YouTube channel. Go to Cornette's Collectibles at jimcornette.com. What's going on over there today, Jim? We've already talked about it at the top of the show, which was several days ago, so everybody's going to have their shit in the next three weeks or so. That's the big news. JimCornette.com. JimCornette.com. The drive-thru is brought to you by the Law Office of Stephen P. New, 888-692-8084. Get even with Stephen at NewLawOffice.com. But until next week here on the drive-thru... And this weekend on The Experience, for Jim Cornette, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally ho! Well, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Yes, it's Jim Cornette's drive-thru. Please shut up and listen while Corny is shooting. Yes, while Corny is shooting on Big Fucking Putin and those outlaw macho fucks. Joey Ryan, the young bucks, the rednecks and dumb fucks, and them dark order bum fucks. And then there's Jelly Janella and Santino Marella, the boogeyman, the boogeyman, the boogeyman. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Corny's drive-thru. Well, it's all elite wrestling. Tony Khan is investing his billions of dollars in some dumb cosplay wrestlers. Yeah, they think they are wrestlers in video games just like Kenny Omega. We pledge allegiance to the leader of the mighty cult of Cornettes. And to the pro wrestling for which he stands. No blow up dolls, kick spots, or dance routines with blood, sellouts, and shoot angles for all. And have you heard about Riho? She weighs 45 kilos and she's their champion. She's a Japanese schoolgirl. All the Japanese schoolgirls like Kenny Omega love to play with his Sega. Yeah, they play with his Sega. You need to sue the guy for you, Steven Pedro, everybody. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. Tony's drive-thru. And now, here are your hosts, Jim Cornette and the great Brian Last. Hello again, friends. The great Brian Last here, you there, and we have some breaking news audio. Of course, we have already recorded the drive-thru for this week. This is an exclusive to YouTube, although we will find a way maybe to include this at the end of the recorded drive-thru. But breaking news, we didn't want to wait till the experience. And to talk about this news, the leader of the cult of Cornette, Mr. Jim Cornette. Well, you didn't even tell them what the news was, Brian. And after all, everybody knows when news breaks, we take it back and get a refund. And the big news, the plethora, the 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 tidal wave, the tsunami 
of walkouts continues in the WWE. People are about as happy working for that company as if they had crotch rot. And now, you know, I got to be honest with you. Because I everybody knows I don't watch Raw live because that disables my fast-forward feature that saves my freaking life. But I get up this morning with the chickens and the pigeons and whatever else gets up early in the morning. <laughs> and I turn on the, the, the internet machine and I see the headline, like unexpected talent walkout on Raw. And I'm immediately, I broke my neck to click on that because I had visions in between the sugar plums and the dancing fairies in my head of like, 15 of the guys just suddenly said, fuck it, and walked to the ring and said, you know what, kiss my ass, and walked out on camera. I'm thinking, what in the goddamn world happened on live television? But we find out that it was still shocking, still newsworthy, people buzzing about it, but it wasn't a mass exodus. It was Sasha Banks and Naomi basically said, fuck you to this creative that you have planned for us and we shall be departing. But it wasn't even a hostile. I mean, how many times have we talked about guys in the past have kept title belts and fuck you and whatever. They walked right into old John laryngitis's office, set their raw women's tag team championship belts down and said, we, we choose not to participate and turned around and left. And this was apparently right as the show was going on the air. Is this what's being reported, Brian? Have I summarized that apparently fairly correctly? Fairly correctly, I believe so. And let's talk a little bit about how the news got out. You say this is what's being reported. The story broke from Mike Johnson, a PW Insider and PW Insider Elite, at 9.05 p.m. So that's five minutes after Raw goes on the air. The headline No, was wait, not 9.05, 8.05. Oh, excuse me. Remember, there are three hours. Excuse me. 9.05 p.m. is when he reported it, so this is an hour He had it within 60 minutes. If he'd have had it at 8.05, they would have told him first before they told old Johnny Ace. You know, I'm thinking about the good old days when Raw was one hour from 9 to 10. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. But the headline, Raw main event changed after talents walk out of taping. The main event for tonight's Monday Night Raw broadcast changed at the last minute to Becky Lynch versus Asuka. After two talents walked out late in the day as Raw went on the air in Norfolk, Virginia. The word making the rounds backstage at the taping is that Sasha Banks took issue with some of the plan created for the original main event, a Raw six-pack challenge to determine Bianca Belair's next challenger at Hell in a Cell. Banks had a meeting with Vince McMahon, and the belief amongst those we've heard from is that when McMahon didn't choose to change direction on the plans... Banks wouldn't back down on her issues and made the decision to leave the taping. Naomi, her WWE Women's Tag Team Championship partner, left with Banks, even though she was also booked in the main event match. WWE quickly shot several new segments with Adam Pearce and Becky Lynch to instead set up Asuka vs. Lynch as the new main event. And this was a developing story when that post went up, but that's how the word got out. Mike Johnson broke the story. Boom! Shattered it, as a matter of fact. And you know what? And we're going to, there's more out on PW Insider and the talents involved. Sasha and Naomi have said some things. We're going to bring that up in a second. But you know what? I was talking to you right before we decided to do this breaking news announcement. And I said, boy, 
the you know it normally in wrestling like there was a mass walkout in Atlanta in 1972 they called it a mass walkout when all the talent went with Ann Gunkel but that was they did, just didn't show up to the next town and there's a lot of times in down through history guys would just leave the territory and you'd never see them again they might take the belt we've told all those stories but it's not often that people actually show up and then depart and most of the modern history of that has been in the wwe jeff hardy literally walked out he walked out of the match climbed the rail and said see you and went out the vomitorium into concourse c or whatever and tony storm literally not only walked out but flew out went all the way back to australia right that wasn't too long ago um and do you know the one we missed when we were talking about famous walkouts brian you know the one that you and me both proved that we're way too burnt from doing too many shows lately the one we missed luger no me and stan lane oh <laughs> how did we miss that <laughs> jesus we're like racking our brains who walked out and we're trying to me, me and stan lane <laughs> yeah bobby stayed <laughs> oh, yeah over, but over the same basic goddamn thing what the fuck are you doing to us on the air right so you understand the mindset, so... Yes. Of course, it was... I mean, there's all different sides of this, right? And at, at this point, I admire, I admire the, the backbone, but goddamn, with all the things that all these people are doing on, in every company, it doesn't really matter anymore. That one beats the other, one beats the other. You know, but go ahead. Let's, let's get started. Well, during the show, again, the fans at home have no idea what's going on. Corey Graves, who many people think is just repeating a lot of things that Vince McMahon tells him to say, or at least things that Vince no, McMahon would like to hear. I can't, can't imagine that would be happening in his ear on a constant basis. He said, quote, Sasha Banks and Naomi summarily and unprofessionally walked out. So again, that was just said on commentary in the middle of the show. Yes, and of course, Corey Graves looks like a guy who used the word summarily in a sentence naturally. Um, it, it, everything sounds like Vince. All the statements sound exactly like Vince, because here's the thing, as Mike reported uh, in an update here, which we may get into, as we said, they found out about this at the gorilla position, Vince and whoever the minions are, either right before or right after the show went on the air, and I can't imagine... My God, Vince's head temperature probably melted part of the polar ice cap to after he's already had a couple of conferences that day because they went to him and expressed their displeasure. And then uh, it sounds to me like he said, well, well, we'll think about it. But they were told later on, no, we're going with what we said. And that's when they went in and quit. So he thought that it was already over with. And then right as they go on the air live, and this is a heavily, they've already promoted the match. It's taking up considerable time in the live program. They, Vince, he might like to change things up to the last minute, but once you're on the air, he's not a fan of it. Let me just get that clear right now. So it, it, it sounds like, I mean, the only thing missing from these statements is the phrase time-honored tradition. This is Vince's alphabet, Vince's vocabulary. So then in the middle of the show, in the middle of Raw, WWE issued a statement, and here it is. When Sasha Banks and Naomi arrived at the arena this afternoon, 
They were informed of their participation in the main event of tonight's Monday Night Raw. During the broadcast, they walked into WWE Head of Talent Relations John Laurinaitis' office with their suitcase in hand. Excuse me, with their suitcases in hand. Yeah, they don't just share one. Placed their tag team championship belts on his desk and walked out. They claimed they weren't respected enough as tag team champions. And even though they had eight hours to rehearse and construct their match, <sighs> they claimed they were uncomfortable in the ring with two of their opponents, even though they've had matches with those individuals in the past with no consequence. Uh, Monday Night Raw is a scripted live TV yeah, show. Yeah, nobody, nobody gets hurt in a fight. Monday Night Raw is a scripted live TV show yeah. whose characters are expected to perform the requirements of their contract. Our puppets, once we shove our hands up their asses, are expected to fucking do the Kukla Fran and Ollie bit. Anytime we want, and, and we control their every move, we control the horizontal, we control the vertical, we control all that you see and hear. I am the control voice, and you are going to the outer limits. They want, and see, that's where they, and, and that sounds like Vince too, but that's where they get heat with the, remember when Vince tried to make himself babyface against Brett? It's so fucking obnoxiously not only worded so assholishly, but also the remaining fans that they have left of this program, they grab them by the collar, hold them down, put a knee in their fucking groin, and start slapping them in the face back and forth with all of this is fake and phony, and we tell all these people what to do. And regardless of whether they're your favorite wrestlers or not, they will fucking hop over this goddamn thing, or they'll carry that barge and lift that bale, or bend backwards and limbo under the limbo stick. And it, it, and it doesn't do anybody any good. Now you've got me pissed off already. We haven't even well, got through this. I, I didn't finish the statement. There's one more line. I know that. We regret we were unable to deliver, as advertised, tonight's main event. Yeah, and but then, then they they're trying to appeal to the fans like, yes, we we wanted to give you this, but those well, no, the fans are saying, well, what did you do to make them so unhappy that they fucking left? Did you talk to them like you just worded in that statement? And and you know, and let's add, you know, Naomi has fans, but Sasha Banks is one of the most popular women's wrestlers of all time. She's a big star. The fans there actually do love her. I don't know. Velvet McIntyre was... Oh, give me a breath. Velvet uh, McIntyre. Let me ask you about this statement here. This isn't just a statement. This isn't just, let's get our side out there. This is coming from a point of anger. You can see it. What does this say about what they want people to think about the wrestlers? The two things that stuck out here are that they have eight hours to rehearse and construct their match. <laughs> and also putting this out there. They were uncomfortable in the ring with two of their opponents, even though they've had matches with those individuals in the past with no consequence. That's trying to embarrass them. What's that? Well, without being in the meeting, you will, if you see that you're pitching not to do something, and hopefully they had the plan B, hopefully they had something else. Right? Because if you just say, I don't want to do that, well, what would you like to do? Well, I don't know. Well, then you're fucked. Right? And I believe that uh, Mike Johnson was reporting that they had some idea 
that would be uh, a tag team, a short tag team match, and then be beaten down afterwards to set up a different program. Because apparently what they were doing was the reason why they were upset with the creative. Let's bring the people up to date on this. Banks and Naomi would both been in two or three segments in Raw, building up the idea that they're going to be facing off in this six-pack challenge. And whoever the wins that will face Bianca Belair at the pay-per-view Hell in a Cell. And apparently, Naomi was going to win it and go on to Hell in a Cell and put Bianca Belair over. And apparently, Naomi was going to beat her own partner in this match, and then her partner, Sasha, would go on to put Ronda Rousey over at the Hell in a Cell pay-per-view, potentially. Well, So... Go ahead. Well, I feel like since you're talking about some of this, let me then, because I don't think you know about this, a statement has been released purportedly from someone close to Naomi and Sasha. So it may cover some okay, of these well, issues. Okay, well, then, then hold on and let me finish the point that I was going to make. Just to bring people into that's their gripe was that they've just, they've been the tag team champions and they were supposed to have some glorious reign as tag team champions, but now they're going to have to fight each other and one's going to beat the other. And then they're going to go and put two other girls over in singles matches. The midnight express would not have been happy about that situation back in the day. Uh, but it, it, when I said going into Vince's office, if they had another idea and when you pitch something like that to Vince and you see that the main reason you have for objecting to the thing and the main thing you'd like to do instead is not landing at all and you can see it on his face and in his manner then you start coming up with auxiliary and you know last time the fucking dewdrop sat on my head and you're doing anything you know and the the brown mustard anything you can think of to add to your and it ain't working right so i don't know that they went in there and said no those fucking girls are too stiff and they're hurting us or whatever the fuck it's probably something like that and then that is being used by the office as you said to make them look bad so here's a statement and again it's being attributed to someone close to Naomi and Sasha Banks and in fact the person on Twitter is followed by Naomi and they were given permission to share the story according to this here it is i'm going to read it verbatim you well, are don't read it read it word for word instead you are approached in February as being put in a tag team and both being promised big feuds at WrestleMania. You bite the bullet and put everything you got into being a tag team. It works. You get over, win the titles at WrestleMania, and become merch pushers. Well, you got something to say about that? No, I said merch pushers. I've never, actually, they would be merch sellers. The merch pushers would be the stooge from craft services or whatever that's in the hallway actually hawking the merchandise but nevertheless it's verbiage five weeks into your reign you show up to live tv and ready to work you are told you will be in the main event and you are happy you both are then told that one of uh, the word is missing is one of you will be going over from pinning the other you have questions why that decision was made and how it helps y'all <laughs> you request she suddenly went to south carolina how it helps y'all you request a meeting with your boss to discuss it your boss takes the meeting and everything is actually going well 
He understands your concerns. The meeting ends well, and the match is told to be reconstructed. For some reason, producers got mad about that. You then ask, with one of your members going over, what happens to your titles? You are told, basically, that you will just be carrying the belts. They want to use you both to help both women's champions get over more. Bianca versus Naomi, Sasha versus Ronda. Neither one of you will win the solo titles, and you won't defend your tag titles until Money in the Bank. You ask for another meeting with your boss, but this time you are being called spoiled. A producer walks away screaming. He comes back and tells both of you to fix your attitudes. Y'all have a brief meeting amongst yourselves and decide to stand up for yourselves. You go to another boss and make it clear that you have concerns. Excuse me, make it clear you just have concerns. You ask, why are we even in the match and why aren't other women in it? You ask why your titles have no stories for two months. Again, you are met with fix your attitudes. So after one final meeting with yourselves and asking others, you make the ultimate decision as a team. It's sad how one side is trying to create a fucked up narrative. Also, it was asked why were Nikki Ash and Dewdrop in the match instead of starting their program tonight. Naomi nor Sasha talked down about being in the ring with either one. I don't know how that got flipped. So I'm not exactly sure about the last part there, but apparently this is from the camp of Naomi and Sasha Banks. What are your thoughts? Well, and and one, uh, uh, again, back to Mike Johnson on PWInsider.com or PWInsiderElite.com if you want to get the the good stuff. Um, they said the idea that they may have pitched instead was them to face Nikki ass and do drop and do some kind of thing or whatever the case. But, I mean, everybody's creative is the shits. And I agree with their their opinion there. That's it's stupid. If this was an uh, you know, I guess this is an all I've had all I can stands I can't stands no more case. But it's not like they're the only ones. They're being persecuted by bad creative. Everybody's creative is bad, and none of this shit makes any sense. And all their champions are devalued. Having said all that. No, it doesn't make a lick of sense to have tag team champions and then they're in the same match with every woman for themselves and then they fight each other and one beats the other and then they put two other people over and they're still champions. No, that's caca. Does it matter anymore? Just to us who, you know, care about the old days and or I guess the person doing it who has some pride in it. I honestly, though, well, now here's the thing also. I was going to say from a financial standpoint, a professional standpoint, if I was Sasha Banks or Naomi, I would rather be on the pay-per-view putting Bianca Belair or Ronda Rousey over in a main event championship match than working with Nikki Ash and Dewdrop. Well, and again, wherever, we, but, we but don't have the payoffs the are done. Well, but that I was about to say there, hold on there, cowboy, pump the brakes. But that would be the old days when you would rather make, be on a bigger match on the card and on the pay-per-view to make more money. That was for the guaranteed contracts and whatever. So who knows if it, uh, they wouldn't make any more, any less money. So 
You know, I, <laughs> I'm actually mostly on their side. Um, what about fix your I attitudes? Just, Would that ever um, be say to a male wrestler backstage by Bruce or Johnny Ace or whatever other producer they may be referring to if it's not one of them? Fix your attitude? Yeah, I probably said that to a couple guys. <laughs> I mean, it's it's harsher when a guy says it to a girl, but now I thought the women had women producers. I mean, was it a producer or or do they do they also call the writers producers or are there non you know, wrestling, I don't know, but, um, you know, yeah, I would, I wouldn't be that nice sometimes with a guy, but that's guy to guy. It may be different. And, and also that's a publicly traded company environment. Maybe as mama Cornette used to say, straighten up and fly right. But, um, and we have heard stories in the past from wrestlers about going in and meet with Vince and everything's fine. And then as soon as you walk out, he forgets everything you just talked about. And well, the next person in the room gets their story out. But here's the thing. I have also, and I've seen this, and this was when he was younger and more nimble of mind, possibly, Vince. But I've seen guys go in and pitch whatever and ask for whatever or the ideas, whatever. And the way that Vince... He doesn't, unless he's just pissed at the talent or whatever, or just can't be bothered in a bad mood, he doesn't shit on somebody's stuff, right? But the way that he receives it, he can sometimes agree to nothing, say no, make no declarative statement, yay, nay, good, bad, indifferent, whatever, just say things that and the the talent will go out thinking that something's going to be done, and he said absolutely nothing's going to change in verbally. It's just the way he does it somehow. What? But that was long ago. Maybe he doesn't do that anymore. But did they think that okay, he's going to do this, and he just humored their pitch and never really said that he was, but they thought it, and then he says do it anyway. Who knows? But I, I I like the spunk. They're full of spunk. Old Sasha and Naomi for just saying, well, all right then. Well, but it, it, I mean, I don't know what you can get away with these days and what you can't up there. But it sounds to me like Vince ain't fucking happy, nor sleepy or dopey or doc or whatever. And I don't know if they'll be back because they've already laid the groundwork verbally that they breached their contract and they are unprofessional and et cetera. And that's the part of, they don't give a fuck about telling everybody, yes, we control all of their movements and this is all fake. And they're puppets that, you know, when we say jump, they say how high because they're setting up the unprofessional argument. They're setting up the breach contract argument and they're setting up also And Mike Johnson had I, Mike. I'm sorry. I'm just, Thank you for doing my work for me today, but you're so good. He had a great line. He said, it looks like they're setting it up for, they can make the claim that if if you're in the walking dead, you don't get to argue whether that you don't want to get bit by the zombie this week. But public pissing contests like this just make... It makes the company look well, bad. What? The zombies don't pay for their own wardrobe. Well, yeah, but yeah. The I'm, zombies I'm don't pick was... their own name and have the company own it. 
I mean, it was a cute, it was a cute line. I know, I know. I'm just uh, saying that there's a, obviously an argument against that, though. But well, yes, and the main argument is when when the WWE as a company does this. Number one, it makes wrestling look even further phony and fake and like shit. And it 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 technically even subliminally devalues everybody's opinion of the whole thing because these guys and girls are not the wild ass uncontrollable superstars that they appear to be. They're, you know, a bunch of fucking Disney on parade, you know, workers that are supposed to wear the Mickey Mouse costume. And it, it makes the company look like the evil empire, which they've already portrayed themselves as on television. And it gives the the fans sympathy for the talent here, for Sasha and for Naomi. It, no matter what they say, the 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 talent, as we've talked about, is going to get the sympathy, and the company's going to get the heat because it's, they've been doing it for 25 years since they screwed Bret Hart. This is their reputation now. And they're actually, it's their reputation with not only with the fans, but with the talent. So what are they fucking doing? If, you know, it's just everybody has to fucking go public now. Shit like this used to happen in the wrestling business. And you wouldn't hear about it. And the only reason why we talk about it 30 or 40 years later or whatever is because if it's the guys told the stories to the other guys and now that everybody's smart, all the old timers share their stories, but nobody knew it then, but now it's instantaneous and it, and everybody in some respect, either the business or the talent or the company looks bad, but usually just the company and the business in this case, it's, it's, it's usually, you know, the other companies that the talent looks bad when they no show or bail or knock them or whatever, like with Tony, because Tony has gone to great pains to be a baby face with his base audience. And most of the other companies don't sell the fans on the fact that they are owned by evil billionaires and their offspring and progeny that controls all their favorite superstars fucking lives. So this is the only everywhere else when the talent does anything stupid in the way of, you know, public relations or walking out or getting sideways with the company or doing something on Twitter, the, the heat either is spread or the company comes out kind of baby face. But this is the exact opposite with the WWE. And they've been doing this. Like Tony Storm would rather leave the country on her own dime didn't work for these people anymore. Hardy just, who knows what he was doing. Maybe he didn't even know he was leaving. Midway through a match, he's like, you know, I'd rather be doing anything else but just, this here. Yeah. Um, that is crazy, because, you know, before we recorded, you and I were talking about different instances in history when someone walked out, specifically when the fans knew about it, like Ernie Ladd in front of the fans, or a situation right, and, like and that. And for, for, the, for the younger listeners... Ernie Ladd was noted as if he came into a territory or a town and business came up with him in the main event, which it usually did, he wanted to be paid for it. And sometimes when it would come to the blow off and he'd be there and he would look at the house and he would figure the payoff that he felt he deserved for the work he'd put into it. And if the promoter didn't agree to it, then he'd grab his suitcase and walk to the ring, walk around the ring so all the people could see him and then walk out the front door. And then let him try to tell the fans that his plane was canceled or whatever, right? Yeah, what would they so have usually done? usually he got what he wanted. 
Yeah, what would Ernie Ladd, Billy Graham, and Ivan Koloff have done if Vince Sr. had tried to pull anything like this with them? Um, well, they... They would have walked out in front of the fans. It wouldn't have got that far. It wouldn't have got that far because logic was applied to wrestling booking back then. Yes, and, and, and Vince would have backed down and figured out some way months or potentially years down the road to get some kind of even. But, uh, but that was then, this is... And also, let's face it, um, Ivan Koloff, Billy Graham, and Ernie Ladd were more integral to the business of Vince Sr. at that time than Sasha Banks and Naomi are to the overall scheme of the business of Vince Jr. at this time. Absolutely. That's 100% true. And so when we were talking about other examples, obviously Lex Luger jumping out of the cage and leaving Florida wrestling. Yes, out in, the, in the middle of the match. And folks, we're not going to go into all these history lessons. They are on our YouTube channel, which is almost at 300,000 subscribers. Well, hell, you know that you're listening to us now. Um, but Luger was in a match with Brody and Brody was not happy and Brody decided to just not sell and Luger got freaked out, nervous, confused, bum fuzzled, verklempt. And finally, and, and wasn't he, Bill Alfonso was there. Was he, he was a referee a manager or he was refereeing. Yeah. And, 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 and he, Luger asked Fonzie, what's, what's he doing? Fonzie, I don't know. And Luger just climbed the fucking cage and jumped down and walked to the locker room, and 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 that was his last night there. But he had a place to go. That's right. It's easy to do that when you know you have a landing spot. We don't and know he, what's going to happen with That's Sasha. when he showed up at, at Crockett uh, a few weeks later. Uh, Bear, Bearcat Wright, let's, let's enumerate a couple of them. Bearcat Wright left the ring in... Well, what was it? It was one of the Los Angeles towns. Was it San Diego? San, was it San Bernardino? San Bernardino. One of those saints. Um, Bearcat Wright had roughed up Fred Blassie and double-crossed him and not dropped the their version of the world title out there as he was supposed to. And what was this, 1964-ish, 5-ish? I was going to say 63, but I got to go back and check now. Yeah. It, it, close enough for rock and roll. And so on that particular night, Bearcat Wright goes to the ring against who he thinks is, I can't even remember who the scheduled opponent was, and he sees Judo Gene LaBelle, the son of uh, Eileen Eaton and brother of Mike LaBelle, the promoters, and obviously Ronda Rousey's judo coach and legendary movie TV film actor. He's walking to the ring instead, and Bearcat Wright knew what was up, and all six feet seven, 265 or 70 pounds of him, former pro boxer, Climbed out of the ring and departed. And did he leave him the belt or did he take the belt? That is a great question. I'm not sure. I don't remember hearing about him taking the belt, but I'd have to go back and check. And, well, you know what? If he was already in the ring, he may have passed the belt off and the ring announcer had it. And that may have been part of the plan, Smithers. There was how you mentioned Korchenko. Tell the people the Korchenko story from Mid-South. Korstia Korchenko, one of the very worst fake Russian wrestlers in the history of wrestling. Couldn't work, couldn't do a promo, just nothing. His look wasn't even good. <laughs> but they put like a red shirt and suspenders on him and furry boots, and he's a Russian. So he's in the middle of this big feud. Bill Watts, attacked by the Russians. They're putting the flag on the cowboy! You forget, it's Nikita and Ivan making a guest appearance from Crockett Promotions. But Korstia Korchenko with Eddie Gilbert, that's who he's managing. So then whatever happened, there were a few instances during a Bill Watts 1986 comeback, and one night Korchenko got tired of getting his ass kicked by Watts, 
or thought he was about to get his ass really kicked by Watts, I don't remember, and left and never came back. Well, I think what it was, he was so, he was big, but he was bad, as you mentioned. He was rotten and he was clumsy, and I think Watts started giving him some receipts. And I wouldn't be surprised if the boys weren't winding him up also because he became convinced on the last night that if he went to the ring, this was the night Watts was just going to beat the shit out of him. And he just freaked out and said, fuck it, and left. Uh, which, and well, now that we think about it, he didn't actually walk out. He checked out mentally during his last ever pro wrestling match, that the original Master Blaster. Whatever. Oh my fuck. God, I forgot about that. Yeah. Remember? <laughs> If his partners with Kevin Nash, who was 19, late bug. 1990 in WCW, <laughs> and it was the Kobo Arena in Detroit, and I was watching the match with, I think, I can't remember if Bobby Fulton was back there that night or not, but, and they were against Brad Armstrong and, and Tim Horner. And this one guy, he had been one of the muscle-bound trainees that they picked up, and they were trying to get, you know, Ole was booking cheap Road Warrior clones. And he screwed up with Brad Armstrong a spot three different times, the same spot three different times in three different ways. And finally, you could say, I, I was all the way in the back of the Kobo, and I'm looking at the ring from that distance, and you could see this guy. I've never seen it before in wrestling. He just turned around to his partner, Nash. He was standing in the middle of the ring. Nash is in the corner. And the guy just turned around and spread his arms out wide and shook his head like, you could see him from every corner of the Kobo visually saying, what the fuck is going on here? And they finished the match somehow. And that night, he didn't even stay overnight. The guy fucking checked out of his hotel and went to the bus station, apparently, and left town and was never seen again. And the guy that became Eddie Gilbert named him Big Al Green. I think he took his spot as the next master blaster. But, you know, there are various instances we could talk about in history. When we were talking about it before we got on the air, the funny thing was that you and I didn't remember any of the recent ones, which is interesting. But here we are, less than six months into the year, and three different wrestlers have walked out publicly from WWE. What does that say? <laughs> well, and, and, then, and then there's the asterisk. Steve Austin was the canary in the coal mine yeah. back in, what, two, 2003. Yeah. But that was a... This was, that was a Vince McMahon, Steve Austin, who knows what was in Vince's bonnet that day that he couldn't see that Steve's gripe was valid, even though Steve has said in hindsight that he shouldn't have just left and took it too far because he was in a, in a frame of mind. But that was a one-on-one -on -one thing between the two most important people in the company pretty much at that time. This was... This was just, I mean, I don't know whether they're trying to to run a tight gulag uh, up there so that none of the other, you know, uh, farm workers get, you know, get antsy or whatever. Uh, but they shouldn't be treating the talent like this at this point when they've already got so much heat with fans and the roster. Obviously, we don't want to go on and on about this all day, so I guess one last thing to look at here is if you're WWE, do you fight them and try to get them? I mean, I'm sure you don't want them to come back, but you got this contract, and WWE does like to punish people at different times. <laughs> what do you do? Do you just release them and say enough of this, or do you hold them to that contract so they can't go to AEW with different names? 
And also Naomi, her husband, is one of the Usos. And obviously oh, he's, shit. he's figured in there. Well, oh boy. You know what? I didn't even think about that. Why did I don't know whether I knew that. If I did, I didn't care enough to retain it. That creates a sticky situation because in the household there, there's going to be some heat because the, depending on which Uso it is, there's already an Uso with some heat. You know what I'm saying? The uh, um, He's not exactly the poster boy for careful driving. So now if that is, is he the Uso that she's married to? I have to check. If that's so now... We got this guy over here. We're pushing him to the moon, the biggest paying job he's ever had. And he's gotten a couple of DUIs and some bad publicity for us. And his wife just fucking walked out of an advertised match, caused us to rewrite half of our three-hour national television bore fest. I don't know if the McMahons are going to be inviting them to Greenwich for the Christmas party. It is, in fact, Jimmy Uso, who's her husband, who has had the problems with the DUIs. Boy, howdy. But again, the Usos, cousins with Roman Reigns, who's never been more important to WWE than now. They're going to try to do everything they can to get more dates, not less dates. Part of the Samoan family. Put the rock in there, too, I guess, somehow. How do you deal with that? But again, Sasha Banks well, is the one know, that's but, the bigger star. Hey, hold on here. How far would Roman Reigns want to go? Say, okay, what's Roman to Uso, the cousin? Yeah. How far would Roman Reigns want to go at a multi-million dollar contract for limited dates per year if, if uh, was he, is he also going to go in and say, and now make sure you don't fuck my cousin's wife around? I don't know if it, it, it depends on how Vince takes this and whether he cools off or not. It, but it, to, to your question that you asked, they ain't going to get out of whatever contract they've got to go to AEW unless Vince McMahon just says, you know what, fuck them, They're, they don't exist to me. And I don't think that that will happen because that would set the precedent that, well, if you don't like your creative and you go home, they'll let you out of your contract and you can go play with the fucking fun crowd. So they ain't going to AEW for any period of time that they're signed up to the WWE if they want to continue to be highly paid professional wrestlers, they're probably going to have to come back or they could be the people who do the Twitch and the other stuff. All those people that make a bunch of money without the WWE, but there, I don't think they're going to AEW anytime soon. And Sasha's done acting. She was in the Mandalorian, which of course is a big hit for Disney plus and Naomi's husband works there. And I know she's been a dancer in the past. And again, there's Twitch and there's all sorts of fans who, especially for female wrestlers, will pay all sorts of money just to see them, just to have well, them yeah, say now, hello. Now watch out, folks. Uh, don't, any GoFundMes that get set up, make sure that you're actually donating to these poor downtrodden wrestlers instead of somebody pretending to be them and catfishing, as the kids say, right? That's right. Uh, who was it? Becky Lynch just said, no, don't give to my GoFundMe. Now Naomi, and no, they're fine for money. I think they'll be okay. They'll make the rent for the next few months. All right, well, there it is, our breaking news audio. Sasha Banks and Naomi walk out of Monday Night Raw. I kind of wish I could have done the same thing <laughs> when I had it on last night, but we'll review it on the experience this weekend. And, of course, wherever you find your favorite podcast on the... There it is. And on the official Jim Cordette YouTube channel. Any final words, Jim? Uh, Yeah, it's a fluid 
situation. And as long as it keeps trickling or dripping, we're going to lap it up. So we'll, we'll be back with more as on the experience.